like to call the Economic Development Subcommittee meeting for February 22nd, 2023 to order, time being 6 o'clock, 6.01. Um, a note to residents, all citizens are welcome to attend public board and committee meetings in person. Additionally, in an effort to maximize citizen engagement opportunities, citizens will be able to continue to participate remotely via phone or Zoom. The meetings will also be live streamed by Franklin TV and shown on Comcast Channel 11 and Verizon Channel 29. If you would like to get into the meeting, you can click on the link on the agenda on the website, or you can call in. It's 1-929-205-6099. And the meeting ID number is 833-0873-1233, then press the pound symbol. Um, I'll say that number again, 833-0873-1233, then press pound. Ah. Okay, so tonight we are gonna have a discussion and an overview about Chapter 40B, for people, I feel like we, we sort of need a refresher, but also people have been talking a lot about it and people really don't understand what the differences are and what has been happening in town. So I thought it would be a good idea for us to have this discussion. And so I, our first item on the agenda tonight is a discussion or an overview of Chapter 40B. And I'm <coughs> gonna throw it over to Jamie first. Sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, good, like, good evening, everyone. Um, just as a quick uh, little bit to add on to what Councilor Hamlin said. So uh, later in the evening, uh, we're getting an introduction to a uh, project uh, on Grove Street uh, proposal, which is called on the agenda Friendly 40B. And it kind of, I think, through you, Madam Chair, I think we all hear about 40B. Um, everyone knows the two letters and. One and one letter, or the two, not, two, two numbers, numbers and one letter, and they just it brings up so many emotions. And we actually have uh, our 10% requirement um, to avoid what people always think of as the toxic 40Bs, which override zoning. But there really are a lot of other housing options. And Brian uh, and Amy have put together a great presentation of an overview. And I've been here over now seven years, uh, going into my eighth year here, and. and and never has there been a discussion, at least my tenure, of what is Chapter 40B. It's always in the context of reaction to something near their house. And that's okay. But I think there's, it's a very complicated law, and as Brian will articulate in a minute, it's a very old law. And uh, it was passed back in the late 60s. And so uh, we thought that it might be helpful, and we appreciate your support here at the EDC. To just do uh, you know a half hour, hour, whatever it takes overview of what Chapter 40B is, what are some of the projects in town right now that are under 40B, mm -hmm. and hopefully give everybody some visuals and some context as to um, what the law really is and what it's done uh, in its history. So um, I guess with that, I, it's okay with you, Madam Chair, I'll just pass it over to Brian and Amy to uh, go through the slide. Absolutely. Thank you, Brian and Amy. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Director Brian Sperner, Director of Planning and Community Development. With me is Amy Love, the Town Planner. I'm going to give a presentation, talking about 20 slides, and it is not 
extremely detailed by any means. It, it just lays out the basics of 40B, um, and uh, because if we wanted to do a you know 60 slide presentation, we'd get some going to get all the details. But and, and not being an expert, if you will, in a 40B, I think the uh, the ZBA actually uh, is much more up on all of the issues because mm -hmm. those, that's where applications go. Um, so. What the presentation outline is, is basically what is a 40B. We'll talk about the comprehensive permit for a minute. I want to talk about the HPP, the, high, uh, the Housing Production Plan, for just a second. Uh, the Franklin Subsidized Housing Inventory for a minute. What actually is affordable home and well, who qualifies for affordable homes? Um, and uh, then we'll talk really quickly about the current 40Bs in town and the uh, fairly recent uh, friendly 40B project review process that the town established, uh, the administration established. So what is a 40B, Mass General Law, Chapter 40B, also known as the Comprehensive Permit Law, enacted in 1969 to help expand the number of communities and neighborhoods where households with low and moderate income could secure a safe, affordable home. It's an affordable housing production tool. Um, it, all 40B projects must have at least 20 to 25%, depending on the type of housing units, as affordable. And per permitting of so-called 40B project is through the Zoning Board of Appeals, not the Planning Board. That is a, a kind of a key thing that people have to understand. Um, the ZBA comprehensive permit process is what the process the ZBA goes through when an application comes in for a 40B. It allows for a streamlined permit process, and the ZBA may apply more flexible standards um, than the local zoning requirements. Um, that's one way of saying that they can get rid of a lot of the uh, uh, requirements for subdivisions and a variety of other things. It's it make it a lot easier for a permit, a, pro, a project to actually happen through going through the ZBA process instead of. Uh, uh, can I ask you a question while you're giving yeah. it to yeah. Um yeah. So, <clears throat> so we mean maybe more flexible. Is there a, um, is there a guide, are there guidelines for the ZBA to follow? Yes, there are. There, there's guidelines. And a lot of times when you see an application come in, um, say, we're, we're talking a little bit now about friendly 40Bs, which I'll get to, but when 40B applications come in, they've already decided that what they're going to, they're going to look to get waived certain zoning regulations. So, you know, usually a pretty long list of them that come in at that time. Um, CBA is the authority on whether to waive them or not. So, um, but, uh, it, so it, like, like I said, if, if it was going to the planning board, we have these zoning bylaws and these subdivision regulations which we go by specifically and some can be waived a little but in the zba uh, comprehensive permit they can waive a lot more than uh, than the planning board would be able to do okay so is exactly what you have to uh, that's in the fine print that we have to uh, get into it on a later day if you want to are there different um are there different levels like depending on like if some towns want to be more flexible than other towns, or is it is it just like basically like the state flexible? Oh. I think I was going to say that Mark would be able to tell you that. Mark, 
So, so first of all, it's not just zoning. It's all local bylaws. Sure. All on the table. They can all be overridden. Mm -hmm. The general standard <clears throat> has to do with the need for housing in the community, affordable housing in the community or the area, the general area. That's the primary consideration unless and until you get over 10%. There's actually a presumption that's virtually impossible to overcome if you've got anything contrary. Mm -hmm. The developer has uh, a claim for the need is that the individual waivers are necessary because if they're imposed, individual uh, requirements, either individually or in combination, make the project ec uneconomical. That's the standard. So uh, all this comes to the fore, much more so, as Brian kind of alluded to, when you're under 10%, um, <coughs> the standard somewhat changes once you're over 10%, and you, you have increased flexibility. And again, the 10% is in the state regulations. That's a safe harbor. Once you get to the 10%, mm -hmm. you cannot be compelled uh, to approve uh, a 40B an affordable project or to grant these waivers. Then it becomes a, then it becomes more of a weighing, is it in the community's interest for a particular project is proposed, whether it's friendly or not friendly, uh, this is pending before the zoning board of appeals. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Right. Sorry, Brian. No, that's quite all right. Let's get some things clarifying. So chapter forty B requires as Mark just said, uh, requires each city or town have at least 10% of its total year-round housing units as affordable housing. And that's what's known as the 10% statutory minimum set forth in 730 CMR. Um, 40B is considered somewhat controversial, um, and many, in, in the many communities feel the 40B projects are forced on them, and there's very little control, local control. Override of a community's zoning regulations uh, is of special concern uh, for, for, most, uh, for most towns. However, in 2010, and I think, I'm not sure if it was happened again in 2016, but I'm not sure if there was a, uh, the voters of Massachusetts supported keeping Chapter 40B as a tool for providing affordable homes for people of all ages. So 58% of voters said yes. So um, they had the opportunity to get rid of the law. They did not, and we're there with it right now. So the comprehensive uh, permit um, issued by ZBA can look for a wide range of housing types. Uh, single family homes or a subdivision uh, is, is a standard, uh, and also multifamily housing developments, either by a condominium uh, developments where you have home ownership or apartment developments. Also, senior housing, um, like the town has up on uh, the uh, Franklin Bridge is coming, and the other one that's already there uh, are good examples of that. So I want to just talk quickly about the uh, HVP, or the Housing Production Plan. That's the correct strategy for planning and, and developing affordable housing. Mm -hmm. uh, the most important purpose is to develop goals and strategies that will result in the community reaching the 10% statutory minimum. Mass Department of Housing Community keeps track of the number and the status of each community's affordable housing on its subsidized housing inventory. <coughs> I just want to note that in 2017, the town uh, Franklin surpassed this state mandated target of 10%. Um, again, on the HPP, 
three major sections uh, in the HPP, the Comprehensive Housing Needs Assessment, which is the bulk of the document, the Affordable Housing Goals, which are basic goals intended to increase the number of SHI eligible housing units, and the increase the number of housing, uh, of housing units for uh, communities, uh, you know, families, uh, people with special needs, elderly, and then the implementation strategies are some of the work that the ADC has been doing lately, and that which you know the zoning amendments that we're working on. Uh, also, we, our strategies explore incentives, which is something we should talk about in the near future, I think. Um, the subsidized housing inventory. We'll try to run through this fairly quickly. Again, we need 10% uh, year-round units. Subsidized housing. It is the list of affordable housing units that the state uses to calculate the, our, our percentage of flow and moderate income housing. So I, I just, okay, just to clarify second, going forward, because this, this is the biggest source of confusion. We're talking affordable, it's a term of art. It's based on there being a permanent affordable restriction on the properties. It's right. not affordable based on market values in the area. So, and that's something that people get confused about all the time. We're talking a legal requirement of affordability as defined by the state. That's like the capital A versus the, the small yes. A? <laughs> right. Okay, Jamie, you wanted to add something? Uh, Mark couldn't have summarized it best by the term art. Uh, affordable oftentimes is in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. What I think is affordable is different than you or you or whatever, and what we want to pay is different. So when we talk about that word, it's used, and I agree with Mark, couldn't be emphasized enough at where the most confusion comes from. It's a defined set, and Brian will get to it in a second, exactly what is affordable defined, and the only guaranteed technique to have an affordable unit, according to the standards that Brian outlined in a second, is really a deeded unit, not based on people's hyperbole of what's affordable in the market situation. So, uh, I couldn't second uh, what Mark said even more than that, and I know Brian's going to go through the, uh, the limits, the income limits, uh, shortly. Yeah, very briefly, we'll get to that. Can you, okay, Patrick has a question. So I guess basically means that at this point, uh, Frank, or people think things are affordable, not affordable, legally. Well, to be legally affordable is one thing. Um, to be, you know, to be affordable. <laughs> Uh, for each individual person, right. that's all different, right? Uh, it, right. It, it really depends on the word and what you're using. Okay. Uh, to be on the subsidized housing inventory, it needs to be a, affordable according to certain guidelines uh, as, at the time that they were added to that. Uh, and there's a variety of different types of so-called affordable on there. There are your so-called 40Bs that we're talking about tonight. There are senior housing uh, projects which, uh, that, or, or over 55, where they say, okay, we're gonna give you 10% affordable units or something like that. So there's a lot of different things. They're not all 40B, um, 40B types. They can also be the, um, uh, the housing authority uh, units. Those were all on our, um, and they didn't go through a 40B process either. Uh, and there are a couple other things on it. Uh, also, if um, in one of our developments, mass development paid the um, the owner up 
them a certain dollar amount so they could bring the cost down of all the units and now that whole so that, that whole apartment complex is on our uh, affordable housing inventory. There's a lot of different ways to, to get to affordable. But, um, so the reason that we are over 10% is what one thing I just mentioned, but um, the, the housing trust is always working at trying to work on, uh, is working on a second large uh, senior project, but they also have done some smaller things in the past that have gone on to the SHI. Uh, the ZBA approved a comprehensive permit application for Weston Woods back in September 2015. That resulted in 280 apartments uh, being added to the SHI. 25% were affordable units. Um, and that 25% that's up there is actually another 20 That actually increased our, our SHI inventory by 25% by increasing 280. Two years later, we had mass development provider finances to Glen Meadow Apartments in back of us here. That resulted in 288 units being added. So with those two, um, we actually ended up in very good shape. Uh, earlier on, we actually had, uh, I can't remember the, the exact number, we were at 8.88% uh, affordable back about five, six, seven years ago. Uh, but with these two big developments going on, we actually are in very good shape now. Um, so according to the web, this is a kind of, uh, don't lose me on this one and, and just we're gonna have to, as of December 21st, 2020, 11.9% of the town of Franklin's year-round units are on the 40B subsidized housing inventory. Therefore, Franklin's in compliance with 40B is not in, under immediate pressure to increase the number of affordable units. The total year-around housing inventory is based on the 2010 census, even though the 2020 census happened a few years ago, a couple of years ago, whenever it was. So the actual number of year-round housing units is actually much more. Uh, in fact, it's probably 1,200 or more uh, housing units, more than with the so therefore, we're not actually at 11.96% right now, but substantially less. And there's a note on the bottom there that says the reason that the state is still using the 2010 uh, census and is that the US census is not giving them uh, numbers that they can turn into year-round housing units, which is the number that they use in the inventory. So next slide, please. So I'm using uh, some numbers that we have in town and I hopefully will make some sense to you. So uh, again, up, right there, up there is November 2019 where we were. Uh, they were using the 1130, which was the 2010 census. Um, and uh, we had at the time 11.95. We added in with building permits over a 10, 11 year period, 1,295 units. That's how much more building we had in that decade, mm -hmm. okay? And that's actually over 11% increase in housing units in town that, for that decade. So estimated number of housing units, because we, did, we don't have the 2020 exact numbers, is roughly 12,645. And if you look at that and compare it to the amount of uh, units that we have, that we know we have at 1,356, mm -hmm. we still have 10.7% roughly. Of, of, of housing units. Um, if the state comes back and says that my numbers are wrong and they're 
you know, a few off here and there, fine, but I, it's generally where we are right now. Okay. Now, if we had the same level of development over the, this ten, next 10 year period between 2020 and 2030, it has slowed down substantially, but it could pick up again. Um, and we same same amount, 1,295 more, mm -hmm. would give you the town 13,940 approximately. And at that point, uh, without adding more uh, affordable units to the SHI, we would drop down under 10%. Mm -hmm. So it is important to think about increasing the SHI inventory, even though we're in pretty sh good shape right now because you don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 years. Okay. Now, there's three projects that have already been permitted but have not been built. Franklin Ridge, which uh, we're working with the developer on up there to develop another affordable uh, apartments and uh, assisted living, 60 units total. All of them would be on the SHI. Madeline Village and Chestnut Senior Village are, uh, well, Madeline is a... Uh, condo type of um, uh, housing unit, which 25% would go on, 32, uh, 32 8 for VH SHI. And senior uh, village is a one building with 27 units. Four of them would be affordable if that gets constructed. So um, can I just ask a question about, so these are, they're not built, but they're permitted. Mm -hmm. They're on, are they on our list? No, they're not they're on the inventory list now, right? Now. Because yeah. I read something about if the permit takes too long to build, then they have to come off. Yeah, some of them go right on, and then then they don't build them, and they come back off. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if any of these went on and came off, but they're not on the inventory as of right now. Okay. And the Madeline Village was that a was that permitted before we had 10 percent, right? Correct. Oh, Mark. So. Brian sort of alluded to it. We were up and down for a while. We were over 10%, and Glen Meadows dropped off, and we dropped under 10%. And during that window, if you will, Madeline Village applied because we were under 10%, they went forward. So then the state came in and, and uh, helped to facilitate Glen Meadow becoming uh, affordable, so we picked up units again and went back up over 10%. Right? Right. There was a gap in there. Right. A uh, couple of quick points. Number one, uh, the state treats home ownership and rental differently. You only get credit in a home ownership uh, project for the actual affordable units. However, on rental, you get credit if you have 25% of a project is affordable, you get credit for all the rental units. Right. Okay, and that, and so, and the, the permit, so they get a permit, I think there's one, some people out there are like, well, well, they have a permit, they don't build, then the permit goes away, so but it doesn't other, go away, they can just. That was the other part, I'm sorry. Okay, sorry. So, when the ZBA hands down a decision, they go on the, they go on the subsidized housing inventory, the, the developer has a year to pull its building permits. For whatever reason, if they do not pull the building permits within the year, then they drop off. If they pull the building permits, then there is another period of time, which I don't know offhand, I don't know if Gus knows, but uh, they have a certain period of time that they have to build out. Six months. Or, yeah, they drop down. Six months. 
So Custer uh, said six months. And just as an example, I said earlier that the local, all the local bylaws and ordinances uh, are determined by the ZBA, and uh, Chapter 40B essentially trumps those, allows them to be waived. State statutes and regulations still apply, and the Conservation Commission principally uh, enforces the state regulations. So as an example, you could have a project approved uh, by the ZBA, but is subject to conservation action under the Wetland Protection Act, and that itself could drag on for a significant period so that you end up losing those units temporarily, at least off your inventory. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mark. Glenn? Um, thank you, Madam Chair. Um, for my fellow counselors who, who may be new to the some of the items listed here under the SHI Housing Development, Franklin Ridge, we're pretty familiar with now that, that new senior living housing we want to build up next to the existing senior housing, um, and Chestnut Senior Village is also a good project. Um, and when Glen Meadows came on as another affordable that helped us push us over 1%, that was also some wise work. It, getting us to that affordable housing units, but I will admit that Madeline Village, which kind of snuck in under the radar, is one of those kind of projects that would not, in my opinion, benefit the community as a whole because it ultimately changes the whole village, even though we would benefit four units, I'm sorry, eight units from the project, it, it wouldn't really be a, a, a big benefit to the community as a whole because of its location and one of those that back a few years ago that when our number dropped below 10%, you know, they went to the state and they said, okay, go for it. They went to the whole ZBA process, the ZBA approved it. They gave them a list of requirements for them to come back with. And I kid you not, uh, this big, which is why that's been sitting on the books for so long. They have issues with sewer tie-ins, they have issues with the extremes, and so on and so forth. So this, this is right next to one of our top properties. So that is one of those projects that even though it would afford us some affordable housing units, doesn't necessarily benefit the community as a whole. And that's why it's really important to stay above 10%. Bingo. Well, this is, this one's, that's a classic example of what can happen when we bought the car. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, Mark, did you have something to add? Yes. Okay. Briefly. So uh, the affordability is generally in perpetuity as long as the underlying zoning does not permit the underlying land use, including zoning doesn't permit the project. Glen Meadows is an exception and you kind of have to be aware of this. When it was built back in either the late 60s, early 70s, that was an as-of-right project. They didn't have to get any zoning relief. So the original affordability restriction only ran with their federal financing program. And when that expired, it dropped off. And that's what happened in the first place. The state came in, they essentially refinanced and, and re-upped for another period. But I don't believe that that is affordable in perpetuity either. I believe that it's been extended, but at some point in the future, it's going to expire again. Okay, all right. I knew there was something different. Okay. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Thank you for that clarification, Brian. All right. Back to me. Uh, so I, for, my understanding was that Glen Meadows is a permanent now, permanent in perpetuity, but we'll have to check on that because that's an important issue. Um, another thing that slipped in, if you will, um, as I was saying, is Western Woods. Um, that's one that we dropped down. 
and 200 and some odd units were, came on, which is good in some respects, but that was a force 40B essentially. It was something that CBA was dealing with right. under, under that process. So what is affordable um, housing? Um, there's, two, there's two things. First of all, what is an affordable home and what is who can live in an affordable home? There are two different issues, okay? Um, Department of Housing and, and Urban Development, HUD, uh, determines housing is affordable in a household, a family or individual, uh, will spend between 30 and 33% of its annual income, gross income, on housing costs. Housing costs are defined as mortgage, or rent for that matter, taxes and insurance. Um, and then we need to assess the median gross family income to see that they fit into certain categories. So um, each, uh, every once in a while, each year, I believe, um, the, uh, the HUD comes up with this, the Boston area median income is 140,200. Households with income under 80% of that median income qualify for affordable. Now, if you do the math, uh, I've, I've been looking at these things for many years. If you look, do the math, I don't see where 80% is any of those numbers there on the chart exactly. <coughs> But in general, this is what we go by. If you're an individual and you want to rent or purchase an affordable unit, the income level is 78,300. You have to make less than that to actually afford, uh, be accepted into the program. Um, and it goes up, family of four is over $1,100,000. Um, so a person qualifies for an affordable housing unit if they eat meet the current income guidelines, which we just talked about. They are a first-time home buyer if they're purchasing. They have to be a first-time home buyer, uh, which they define, though, as a home in the last three years. So you know, <coughs> 10 years ago, you sold a house. You still can go into the program at this point. Um, they have to obtain a mortgage if they're purchasing, assuming, and they have to have a 3% down payment. Um, and they meet the asset limit of 75000 If you have money in the bank, if you're worth more than $75,000, you don't afford them. You cannot qualify for affordable homes. Okay. Yeah. So in other words, you really do have to be broke. Your limit of money that you're making is to be fairly low, and with today's housing, with the high cost, it's very hard to meet those guidelines. So housing unit is affordable if household the family will not spend more than 33% of their income. Um, household earning 70% of the area medium income can obtain a mortgage. And you need a deed rider restricting the value in perpetuity. <coughs> so I want to just talk quickly about the current 40 base. Um, there are a couple um, here. Uh, is Benjamin Landing or your Court? One of those is not actually a 40 B, but we have them listed because they do have uh, affordable units and they're similar to the others uh, there. Um, a lot of them are a subdivision and then there of course there are things like uh, Franklin Heights. They're either garden style or, or things like that. There, um, These are home ownership, single family or condominium type 40Bs. Okay. Then we have uh, other type 40Bs. We have Franklin Commons, uh, where you have 96 apartments, um, 
63 of them are affordable. Residence at Union Place is a picture of Union Place. It's 300 <coughs> apartments, 75 are affordable. Glen Meadow and back of us, again, 297 apartments, um, and they have a total of what, 60, 73 of the units are affordable. Some of them are so-called workforce, and others are uh, lower income, uh, where 60% of the area median income qualified. And then we have the Westerly, uh, which 70 units are available for households earning 80% or more. So. Uh, we have two senior housing, one at Eaton Place, which is 50 units, which was completed years ago. Now Franklin Ridge, right back of it, is being uh, worked on. Below is an image of what Franklin Ridge senior housing would look like. Um, on the right side here, we have 40 Bs that are not built. Uh, one called uh, Oliver Crossing now, that was actually Franklin Heights Parcel B up on Lincoln Street, which has 19 units of affordable. Madeline Village, as we mentioned, uh, has been approved, and they have eight units of affordable. And St. John's, which is before CBA right now, has uh, 64 units, all of which would be affordable if approved. So we have a, um, because we had uh, several um, uh, 40B projects in front of us uh, a year ago. Um, it was hard. <laughs> it was hard really to take to figure out which one is is the way to go. Uh, so, uh, 40B project to build mixed income housing under 40B initiative program. 40B is a project that has local supports. A friendly 40B. It is. It, it has contribution. A contribution to the project can make to the community's needs or contributions that the developer agrees to make in to <coughs> local needs, infrastructure, public safety, land uh, protection. Unlike traditional 40Bs, this allows municipalities to, re to remain in control of most aspects of project design and construction. So during 2022, there were several proposed friendly 40B projects going forward. The town staff didn't really know what to do with them. We talked to Jamie, we talked to a lot of people and said, there's several projects here. Are they all gonna just go through the regular ZBA project and ZB, whoever gets first, ZBA will be deciding on all of these. But because none of them are, you know, they, re they really are a so-called friendly 40B situation in reality because um, we don't need to accept anymore. We're, at, we're over 10%. The town does not have to, does not have to agree to any more. Um, so uh, the town administrator tasked us with developing a preliminary process to determine if, if a project meets the needs of the town and follows the, the LIP process. So we developed a friendly 40B project preliminary review checklist. And uh, a developer completes the checklist and submits it with other materials. And the town's point of contact, and it's the, uh, the town planner in this case, receives the completed form and the town begins a 30-day review of the proposed development. That 30-day review um, is really a three-step. It, it is a presentation by the applicant to the technical <coughs> committee. And, uh, we, like we do with all 
projects that come before us, we try to identify issues of concern and, and tell the developer our opinion on them. And mostly it is regulation related opposed to uh, like or dislike. It is, uh, we try to stick to the, uh, the regulations and with the issues at hand. Then they uh, aptly go for a non-binding review uh, by the Planning Board and a non-binding review by Conservation Commission. After that review, um, the applicant really needs to get a, a Department of Housing Community Development letter which acknowledges the number of units that will be accepted on the town's SHI. The town council is given a presentation. Uh, this is kind of a prelude, I think, tonight uh, to that, but uh, the applicant would uh, present an overview of the proposed project and outline the benefits and gather feedback from the council. And then the applicant will submit a full application to ZBA for review and decision. Uh, I have to note that participation in this friendly 40, uh, 40B review process is not a requirement. It is just something we established to uh, try to <coughs> hash out what, what is a, uh, what type project the town may want to uh, accept and others may, they may not want to accept. Again, you do have the right to not take on any 40Bs if you really want to do that. If you want to, if you want to look at a 40B for what it, the benefits are to the town, you may consider all of those issues. Um, but either way, it does go to the ZBA. The applicant could go, could forget about the, the concept of this uh, review process and you have to go directly to the ZBA with an application. So, Mark, I'm sure, would like to clarify. <laughs> See, he already, he already put his hand up. There you go. Mark. So, so for clarification, once you hit the 10%, uh, although you have the right to say no, you still have to, as the Zoning Board of Appeals, entertain an application and go through the process. So whether it's friendly, as Brian indicated, because that, that would help to weight it that other town boards have determined there's some value in the project and, it, and kind of a suggestion to the ZBA to give a sympathetic approach to it. However, if it's a developer that could not get that designation or did not want to bother with that process, they have the right to file with the ZBA. In the course of the hearing, the ZBA would determine that the town was over 10%, but they would also have to go ahead and independently evaluate and make findings with respect to the proposed project during the course of the hearing. Okay. That's it. You understand that? Yep. You understand that? Um, I have a question about the um, how do we make sure when a when a house gets sold an affordable uh, with a capital A that has a deeded affordable right goes um, is sold by with the um, sold as affordable not at market rate like who keeps track of that when it gets sold. So as part of the initial process, there are documents put on record at the Registry of Deeds, which will show up in the title search, indicating the, that the property is has an affordable housing restriction. It has to be, and that's a spell out document with a very detailed technical process. So the, the problem generally isn't the resale so much. There's been two, two issues. 
One has been mortgage foreclosures and, and the, uh, either the failure of the foreclosing institution to comply with the process or the inability to find a qualified buyer. You only really have a specified period of time to do that as a town when notified. And then Maxine Kinhart, who's our uh, person that handles affordable housing, would initiate a process to try and find a qualified buyer. The other really problematical situation was back during the last big housing boom, the one that led to the big crash, there was a lot of loose lending that went on and, and, and a lack of care and, and some unscrupulous people got loans on affordable properties far in excess of the restriction on the value and then they were underwater and they just walked away from it. So there's, there's all kinds of problems, largely with the home ownership program, because you only have to qualify when you buy the place. After that, there's no restriction because as a practical matter, it's ownership. Whereas with rental, you have to be annually certified to qualify. So there's, there's tighter restrictions on the rental than there is on the home ownership. Oh, and, but we have Maxine that, that watches she that for us. It, yeah. Okay. It's good to have. I heard from somebody that some um, in their son's town that uh, recently a house had sold that was supposed to be affordable but it went for market rate and so um, there's a big, um, if, if there's a big problem. It, if you sell it in excess, the surplus goes to the town. Okay. The owner is selling the house and it, there's also the problem is it was the deed rider which the state generates, the standard legal form has changed as the old deed rider and there's a newer deed rider. The newer deed rider, which is what you're exposed to now largely, is tied into, as Brian alluded to, not market rate for properties, but rather the ability, that the percentage of median income, the ability of people to carry it. So the rate, so the old riders used to be set on a a percentage of market value. So when the home uh -huh. home values went crazy, it's it's reduced, but it's still a grossly excessive figure that people cannot come up with. Certainly, a first-time homeowner. Uh, so those have been very problematical. But DACD, as I said, has updated the rider, and now it is tied in that permanent restriction, and it floats based on what's happening with mortgage rates and incomes and all that. So those, those are two factors that go in different directions. So Brian could give you this presentation in a month and the figures could go up and down from what are in there because they, they respond to the market as you plug them in. Thank you, okay. Um, does, does, Colby? Yeah, just one question I, already, I always had around these is, do you have information on how the actual funding from the state side works? Like there's some, benefit to the developer, right? Some money back for subsidizing it? Well, some of the projects are subsidized by the state, but not all, as far as, uh, you know. So really... Um, so if, the, if, if the state isn't coming in when it's first being built and saying, hey, we'll put this much money to help you build it, any other 40 feet project, offering it at, offering those at reduced rates, they're getting nothing for? It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, okay, but there's both federal and state programs, it depends on whether they're in force or not, but also the developer is, again, by trumping the local regulation, can build a substantially increased density 
to what they would be able to build as of right. And so they, they're picking up the, the premises that the, they're picking up the profit that way. Yeah. And in fact, there's a, there is a cap of 20% on their profit on 40B projects. Captain yeah. Profits. I have more. Okay, go ahead. Um, oh. Yeah, so I, I, it was, this is more just a point, but um, we accented one piece, which is that in talking about our inclusionary zoning process, we're talking about minimum 10%, but those don't help reach our uh, 40B. Uh, totals, unless they put in 25%, that 15% gap seems like the opportunity for those incentives that we talked about, where really we want to encourage someone to go above and beyond um, and, and make it worthwhile for them. Yeah, the, the town could utilize uh, incentives. Um, we're going with a straightforward, the, the bylaw right now that's being going to go to town council. Uh, it's straightforward, 10% required once you get to 10 units, I guess it is now. So um, if it were a 40B, they would have to go, uh, you know, with their uh, multifamily development, they would have to go with 25%. Okay? But even at the 10% uh, in the inclusionary zoning, if 10% is required, then at least if you're keeping at the 10% that's going on the inventory, on the SHI, so we're not going to drop down substantially. If, if somebody had 100 units, 10, 10 of those units goes on, goes on the SHI, um, so our percent would drop down a very little amount, a very small amount. It wouldn't drop all the way down. You know? so, um, so it's very important to, to have uh, the inclusionary or something similar so on any multifamily, so we don't end up uh, going down quickly. Because uh, we have had some larger developments that did not have any uh, affordable units in them, uh, and that did that hurts. You know, it's great to have the units, but it does hurt the SHI substantially. Mm -hmm. okay. Thank you, Patrick. You have, you have a question? Yeah, I think maybe. Uh, <coughs> Let me explain to the Zoning Board of Appeals who they are and how they get on. Jamie? Uh, Chair. Um, maybe have Gus come up real quick to just give a quick on the ZBA. Um, but before to answer uh, the first half of Patrick's question. So the ZBA um, are appointed, uh, they're nominated by the town administrator and they're ratified by the town council. Um, there are three members that are all at large and then two associates. This is very common in most communities. Um, the exceptions to this rule, um, I've, I'm not familiar, Gus, Mark, or Brian may be, but I am not familiar with any elected Zoning Board of Appeals. In fact, I believe that's against state law, so you'd have to have a town charter change. And really now you're getting into what Boston and some others have with redevelopment commissions, mm -hmm. right? Um, where you essentially assign away that power center off to a set, a set entity um, that is solely in charge of those issues. Um, the only other one thing I'd add, Madam Chair, is see Councilor Fringilla's question a moment ago, is he knows, and just for the record, 
the 10% piece, that's the cap under MBTA communities, which is disappointing, but just so people understand as this bylaw goes through the planning board and hearing process, you know, you're right, that gap is where there's an opportunity lost. We now can't do it within the half mile of the MBTA station because our outgoing governor capped it at 10%. And I'll just remind everybody, right, well, that's a big, for, that's a pretty big deal. And, and, but also only after, <laughs> only after basically dozens and hundreds of letters were sent to the office for the original regulation did so many communities complain about that it felt like the scraps of things that we did were thrown to people and said, well, you can do 10%, we'll allow you a couple of more units. But there is that gap, and Councilor Jill is accurate. Um, that's, a, that's a big lost opportunity, and hopefully the incoming administration will, will change something. Gus, do you want to just go through what the ZBA is, basically, and what the state <coughs> is? Um, it's changed a lot because of this non-binding suggestions, so to speak, with the different boards. But before that, they would apply to uh, me and I would deny the project, the comprehensive permit, and get them on board with the ZBA. And they would have to hear that hearing within 30 days. We give out the notices, just like the planning board does, um, as far as what we need to send to neighbors. It's in the newspaper. Um, then once that 30-day mark hits, we have to have a hearing. Um, and generally, they get continued um, in the beginning stages because everyone's asking for information that might or might not be on their application. They're also required, um, I don't know if it's a law, but they're required to um, hire a consultant. And it's actually hired through the town. And, um, and they advise the town on the best way to hear what is being presented. Um, it's, it's a pretty complicated process. It takes several meetings. It's worked well, I think. It's my opinion that we have several in town that are, work very well. I don't know if that answers all your questions. Or... Can I answer a question? Yeah. Thank you, Gus. There's a lot more to, there's a lot more to it, and, but that's the, the bones of it right there. And, um, I think uh, Franklin Heights was a recent approval, and um, there was a lot of back and forth, and the questions that came up were answered well. Um, the consulting attorneys and the traffic study people that, that are involved do their due diligence, and the board re reviews everything as, as well, and the decision is based on a comprehensive project that involves safety and um, the affordability component, and I, I think it's a good thing for everyone. So, so when the when the application comes in first, you deny it. I do. So you have to go through. So you have to go through that step. That's the official thing that I do. Um, that's a state <laughs> requirement. Okay. Um, I write a denial letter, and that in that denial letter, um, the the um, hearing notices go out with that denial letter to the abutters and to the newspaper. And then, and then in that letter, does it say um, you should, you should um, send an application to the ZBA or you've already done that and you already have a date for the, the official 
thing that I do is I get I deny the project initially, and then um, they have within 30 days it has to be heard. Okay. That's that's okay. kind of simplifying it down. Thank you, Gus. I'm going to go over to Mark now. Yeah. Mark. <laughs> so that's, that's the receiving end of this, but initially the developer has to determine how they want to proceed, and generally they have to go to uh, Mass Development, which is a quasi-state agency, and get a site approval letter, mm -hmm. uh, particularly if they're proceeding straight under 40B. And there's, what, there's a, a whole process there. This county has the opportunity to comment during that. Uh, frankly, Mass Housing generally rubber stamps those kinds of approvals. And then they file with the ZBA, the applicant or the developer. That's a big packet of supporting materials, again, required by regulations. The uh, DHED guidance on this is something 60 plus pages, even though the statute's only three or four sections of law. Um, and so then, if you have a, a friendly 40B, it works kind of in reverse because you work it out with the municipality, and then you file with DHCD uh, to get their determination that the process, the project uh, conforms to their regulations for, uh, Brian referred to LIFTS, local initiative <coughs> programs. So, and then, so, then it ultimately does come back and it, it still has to go through the CBA uh, process with the hearing and all. So if you don't have 10%, then the developer gets that uh, mass approval first. The site, yeah. The site approval first. Yeah. Okay. And then if it, we have over 10%, a friendly 40B comes in, we all we work together. We decide, and then they get the approval. Or again, that's assuming they're working cooperatively. They could decide unilaterally that they're going to simply file, regardless that you're over ten percent, and, and they go to mass development for the letter. It's the same process, mm -hmm. and then and then come to the town. We've had that happen actually. Okay. okay. Uh, and then just to complete the picture. The oversight is an agency within DHCD called the Housing Appeals Committee. Even though it's got that informal name, it's a very established administrative agency. Uh, appeals, appeal, developer appeals, that's the Housing Appeals Committee. And then it very much depends whether you're over 10% or not, what happens up there. Ultimately, their decision is appealed to uh, either the Superior Court or the Land Court, who has a limited review under the State Administrative Procedures Act. And just again to complete the picture, that was for developers who were un, un, unhappy with the results. Even if the developer's happy, the town's happy, abutters have an interest as well, and they can also take a, an appeal, which was what happened on Madeline Village. The uh, uh, private abutters took an appeal to the Superior Court. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Mark. Um, do you have a question? No, just a couple. Um, I actually have one other question, and then I'm going to ask if anybody else has any questions. Um, I so we have the um, St. John's. So when did St. John's come through? Because they're they're doing a different. It seems to me it's a different route. They're not going to fall. They're not. It's not following the friendly 40B, but it's like people have asked like yeah. how. What's the difference between this process versus that process? I, I believe they did what I alluded to. I believe they, 
a file with mass uh, housing or mass development and then straight file to the ZBA instead of going in this informal process. Through you, Madam Chair. And essentially, you know, Gus can probably answer this as well because it's before the ZBA, but a lot of this, just for ease, so we're not going through the 60 pages of regs, a lot of this is because it's all affordable. It's at low income, okay, 60 and 40% of the area white median income. So when you look at those numbers that Brian had up there a moment ago of 80%, a portion of those units cut that in half. And because there's heavy amount of state subsidies or federal tax credits, you know, kind of a potpourri, if you will, of stuff, Mark alluded to this a moment ago, just depends on whether the federal government funds those types of credits and the budget, you know, that it can go up and down over time. You can't really consistently always count on it. It's not like Franklin Wage where you advocate for money and you get a grant, you know? That's $4 million like in the bank to do certain stuff. It's not really exactly the way it works. But because they're going under a designation of 100% affordable and at those income levels, and as we've heard through the inclusionary zoning bylaw process, I think we've heard you know quite a bit, and I think the EDC and others have been very sensitive to the financing challenges for many developers at that level of affordability, right? Banks don't take a lot of flyers on that stuff for obvious reasons. It's a shame, but we know money's money, and that's the way it goes. Um, and so you have a situation where a project like that essentially gets kind of a, a you know, kind of cuts the line almost um, because of the demographic um, that that's serving in addition to um, the builders obviously working on this project for many, many years. So there's a state developer kind of relationship yeah. about financing it. So that's why that one, just for simplicity purposes, is why that one's going a different route. Okay, all right, thank you. I know that people have wondered yeah. and um, I just feel it's important to let people know. Yeah. So um, I'm going to see if there's anyone in the audience that has any questions or comments. Come on up to the mic. Uh, let, us, let us know your name, street address. Uh, good evening. I'm Christy Apicella. I live at 27 Patton Road. I've communicated with many of you about um, the proposed development at 237 Pleasant Street for St. John's. So thank you for having this session. It's very, been very helpful for me to understand some of these processes and to hear the comments about um, how 237 is different from some of the other developments. I still have the question about if it's a friendly 40B or I don't want to call it an unfriendly 40B, um, but St. John's coming in, um, the way that that development was filed, it doesn't seem to have had the same public process as, for example, the next item on this agenda, Grove Street, that's being presented before the Economic Development Committee. I understand Conservation Commission has commented, Planning Board has commented. It doesn't, I, I'm not seeing evidence of that happening for 237, and it's adjacent to the Delcart conservation area, so there's potential environmental impacts. I've personally raised some safety concerns, as have some of my neighbors, and I know those concerns are being heard, but I'm, I'm not understanding why some of the projects that are friendly are being vetted more transparently than it appears that 237 is. Okay, um, Brian. Good, Brian. we're gonna go to Brian first. Thanks. <laughs> I would love to try to answer that question. <laughs> so, um, a year ago, um, and nine months ago, in that range somewhere, there were several 
developers in town looking for developing a 40B project, which is the reason we decided that, Jamie decided that we needed some sort of process to review these projects. So we developed the friendly 40B project review process. And when we, before it was actually presented to council, I believe is when Pleasant Street project came in. So we hadn't formally said to everybody at that point. A week later, after, you know, or, or a day later, maybe it was after it went to council, they, Jamie told everybody about it. Um, so I think that all they, they got in under the gun. Otherwise, we would have asked them to, to go through this process. But either way, a developer can go directly to CBA. So they, they have, they're in their rights to do what they did. They did what the norm is. We were hoping that uh, every we would get in, you know, get everybody reviewed essentially and do the process um, for them as well as others. But they were they were the first to submit and, and go forward. That's all. Well, well, first I want to make sure, Christy. <laughs> did you do you did does that answer your question? Did you have a question? No. What she's, I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. <laughs> Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, it partially answers my question about the timing. Um, the the other part of it is that I understand that the the zoning relief that an applicant can obtain through this process and for affordable housing that I absolutely agree that the community needs. Um, I'm not opposed to the affordable housing. What I have raised concerns about is the process for the approval. So, if the zoning board of appeals still has to look at those impacts. The impression I'm getting from the Zoning Board of Appeals is that they can only require things of the developer if the town officials ask them to do that. And I don't know if I'm misunderstanding their purpose or what What can the town do to ensure that as this proposal goes forward, and on this slide, Brian, it did note, it said it was permitted and not built, and I don't think it has been permitted yet. Um, correct, yes. So, what can the town do for conditions of a permit that, is, that assure that the impacts of that development are understood and potentially mitigated? Good question. We're going to go to Mark. So regardless of whether it's friendly or not, the process in front of the CDA is exactly the same. When the application comes in in the first place, they send out notices to all the other town boards and commissions that they've had this filing because they're going to essentially act as a super local board on behalf of all the other boards. Mm -hmm. uh, an applicant on a comprehensive permit is required to list all the waivers that they want from the local regulation, all the zoning, uh, local wetlands, uh, any other regulations, water and sewer, whatever it is, they have to list them all and the ZPA is part of the decision has to determine whether or not to grant each and every one of those. Now typically, as I said, they will reach out to other town boards and commissions and the town staff for comments which can be provided. Uh, they also have the ability to obtain at the expense of the applicant such uh, consultants as they feel are necessary to review the process, such as traffic engineers, wetlands engineers, whatever they feel is necessary based on what they're reviewing. Uh, I know that the town engineer has been involved in this process. 
I know it's been reviewed for the for the existence and proximity of wetlands. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been reviewed from a traffic and safety standpoint, and that's a process ongoing. So uh, generally, people are aware of these things and are looking at. Jamie. Thank you, Andrea. So I just, in terms of the question that she had in terms of why are these different, they, they are inherently two completely different plans. So the one that's before, we'll hear from in a little while, is under the local initiative program. It's 25% affordable. Um, there's a different financing model with it. Um, and the one that's being proposed at St. John's is, is inherently a completely different project. It's 100% affordable. It comes with a tremendous amount of state support. As I said earlier, it basically takes a beeline, um, you know, cuts the line to some degree. It's not really that quick, by the way. It's not like cutting the line in the supermarket. But essentially, they have a beeline right to DHCD for the, the purposes that I mentioned uh, just mm -hmm. a little while ago. There is no profit in that project other than what's capped under the law uh, by the developer that's doing them. You know, the projects that are the friendly 40Bs that we're terming, that is a widely used term, it's not one just here. Many of the other 40Bs, um, just inherently, they're just two different, completely different projects altogether. I would mention one thing about, uh, really quickly, about the review process. One area I, deal, uh, I disagree with uh, the commenter is both projects have been, all projects for that matter, are inherently trans transparent. Um, the ZBA has already handled, I think, a half a dozen meetings on the project. There's going to be probably at least a half a dozen more before it finally actually, you know, gets approved. Um, and and the process that we laid out for friendly 40Bs um, is transparent, has a few extra steps in it to go vet through other boards. Mm -hmm. And even if there wasn't a 40B, there's still a planning board process. There's still a butter notifications. Um, there's still publicly posted agendas. And um, there's a heavy amount of communication and collaboration between the town staff on every single housing project in the town of Franklin. You mentioned earlier about the tech review committee that we have at three o'clock on Wednesdays. Um, that's Brian, Amy, Gus, myself, the town attorney, the town engineer, the fire chief, uh, the conservation agent. We sit in this room, we talk to developers, applicants, homeowners, business owners, anybody that wants to come through. And we try to give them, you know, they try to propose to us and they say, hey, what do you think about this project? We do that to create a more efficient process actually at the planning board or ZBA level. Um, and we do that so that when they file, um, they're filing concurrently and they're at least aware. There may be some tips that come up about, well, you might want to apply for a liquor license if you're a business, or what about the setbacks over here, or think about the stormwater bylaw. Um, and so inherently, all of our town staff are talking on a weekly basis, if not, if not a daily basis, about all of these projects. And I do think that um, ultimately, um, the vast majority, if not all, of the projects that are built in Franklin uh, do have a high level of transparency affiliated with them. Um, and to uh, finish off the question that was asked, whether it's the planning board special, whether it's the planning board permit, the ZBA permit, the conservation permit, any of those permits have the abil ability within law to have mitigation conditions for that development. And I think that that's what right now they're going through at the ZBA level where they're doing the traffic studies and going through the peer review. And the ZBA eventually will look at a series of conditions that the developer has to adhere to. Maybe you know, mitigation of traffic islands or signage or crosswalks. I mean, it could be a whole variety of things. And that's why having our town engineer 
and DPW on tech review committee, and Mike Magley, our town engineer, also goes to all planning board meetings. So there's a lot of expertise in the room. Um, I know that it can be anxious sometimes to watch the process go along, and it can take a long time. I've had many people tell me, you know, why does this take so long at the ZBA? <laughs> you know, generally, that's because these hearings do take a long time, because it is intended to vet out a lot of the issues that have concerned the staff, elected officials, business owners, and certainly residents. So I hope that goes a little bit further in answering some of the questions that were asked a few moments ago. Thank you, Jamie. I think, um, so the question, I think there's like, so each step, each or each department could ask for mitigations. And the mitigations get, let's say, um, the traffic study, right? Um, and so then where is that traffic study posted? Um, when people discuss it, all that information, so the so the um, residents in the town can see all that information. Is that somewhere, Gus? Madam Chair, that's posted on the ZBA website. All that information is uploaded. Casey Thayer does that for us um, when all the information is, comes in. And you know, Christy and I have talked quite a bit about this and I've heard everything she said and assured her that we will, we're not done yet. You know, we're looking at all avenues, um, what the final decision will be. I think it's got to do with um, a multitude of things that, that we'll look at and we're not quite done yet either. Um, there's been no decision handed down and mm -hmm. I'm confident that between the police, fire and DPW and Mike Maglio, that they're gonna make sure that this project is is either approved or disapproved. If it is approved, um, it's going to be approved in a way that's safe for everyone. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Quickly. I just want to emphasize, anyone listening at home, like, don't kill yourself reading these studies. It really, I know people want to read them, and, the, and all the architectural designs are on the planning board website. Amy did a great job putting up all, but for the average person, I respect the fact that it's extremely frustrating and very detailed and hard to read. Just pick up the phone, we're all here all day, send us an email, Brian and Amy, myself, Mark, Gus, we all meet with citizens every day that have questions. It can save citizens hours and hours of heads being pounded against the wall trying to understand these very thick, deep studies. They're all online, but you know, I, I find that sometimes a 15-minute conversation on the phone is a lot of the path of least resistance. Or citizens need to show up at meetings, email us, email the board's comments. Uh, don't suffer in silence on these things. Just come in and talk to us. As Gus just said, and I think Christy and others can at least attest to you, you may not always get exactly the answer you want. It may not be what you want to hear, but you're at least going to understand it, hopefully, in a better way. And your voice can, in a lot of cases, have a pretty big impact on these projects. So. It's just, I know a lot of people call me a lot and tell me how frustrated and angry they are that they have to look through these complicated plans they don't understand, and, and that's okay. Uh, we're here to try to give them some assistance too on trying to help people understand what's actually going on right now. Thank you. Glenn. <clears throat> Thank you, Madam Chair. I, I think one of the big takeaways from much of this discussion is the fact that even though we are, we are in a relatively fair position to deny 40B projects as they come along. A, we shouldn't be because we need to stay above our 10%. Um, but we're not immune from 
from 40B. I mean, if like projects like this one where JDH as well put, they're looking to make every single reform. That's something that the state is very desirous of. And, and we, we should also be desirous of having that. I think what really, what it boils down to is trusting the process. One of the things that I would hope part of that particular project is that they make an effort, specifically in regards to the wetlands and other stuff like that, to reach out to compound. They don't have to. They can request waivers and other stuff like that, because one of the things that um, the, the developers for Madeline Villages tried to do was basically get as many waivers from the ZBA as they could, including wetland waivers, without ever once contacting the Conservation Commission and getting their opinion or their thoughts on that process, which I thought was rather underhanded, but that's the rules under the ZBA. And, and they can request all these waivers and the ZBA return can in turn require a list of requirements that they need to go out and meet. But in the meantime, just skip out on asking opinions, thoughts, ideas, or whatever of all these other boards. So my hope is that as these process controls with this particular project, that they do the due diligence of reaching out to the appropriate commissions and committees, especially the, what the Conservation Commission, in regards to um, how much of the fact that, that particular piece of property might have in that area. These are valid questions. I just hope they don't skip or try to skip that process. Okay. Do we have any questions <coughs> in the audience? I can make a statement? Yeah. Okay. State your name. Hi, it's Joe Halligan, One Newell Drive. Uh, I learned a little bit tonight from Brian's presentation. Uh, these friendly 40Bs, in my opinion, are a good way to plan the future of Franklin. Uh, also an insurance policy down the line. Uh, I didn't realize that possibly by 2030 we might be under 10%. Mm -hmm. This is an opportunity for everybody involved to review this process and going with a friendly 40B, we can get more out of the developers. Monetary gifts, sidewalks, walking paths. We can work with developers and get as much as we can out of them to ensure that the surrounding community and the people can enjoy the whole product, not just the people living there as far as infrastructure, improvements, stuff like that. Uh, if we do get to 2030, which if we keep kicking the can down the road, per, per se, these products take two, three years to get occupied by the time they're built. It's 2023. We're talking 2026. Not 2030 <laughs> is tomorrow. And we'll be sitting here going, oh my God, we should have dealt with these people when we could have got what we wanted. Now you get people rushing in and just building what they want, less control. Uh, Jamie did come up with a great plan. Uh, and if they follow these uh, requirements and everybody's involved, I think it's a positive rather than waiting, kicking the can down the road and waiting for that, well, maybe maybe we won't be 10% next year. And then all of a sudden, the statistics come out, permits again are coming in, and we have no control of it. And I'd much rather see the town benefiting from projects, keeping us up to that 10 or above that 10%. Mm -hmm. There's 230, we'll be here tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Did <coughs> you have a question or comment? Yes, I did. Steve Sherlock, 10 Large Drive, Green Information Director for Franklin Matters. Several weeks ago, you had a wonderful presentation, which I learned a lot at around 40R, and I didn't hear that tonight. Can somebody quickly explain what the two are related to, if they are related? I assume they are, but I'm just trying to put them together and have it able to be a fix. Mark? So, the, so there's some overlap, but the focus is different. 40R 
is uh, referred to as smart growth, transit-oriented development. It's for revitalization, redevelopment of downtown areas with connection to mass transit. And yes, there, there can be an affordability component. And really, that's kind of a win-win the way that's designed because uh, the municipality gets credit for the affordable units if if they're, and I believe it's a 20% requirement, uh, the municipality gets, gets the credit, the developer does not have the cap on, on profits that I alluded to under the 40B program. So uh, it's got its own set of regs, it's, but it's pretty much an independent, it's another tool in the box, if you will. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mark. Does that answer your question? Much better, thanks. Okay, great. Is there anyone online that has a question? There's some people there. Zoom land. Yeah, well, TV land, Zoom land. <laughs> Online. Uh, oh, there's a, there's a hand. There's John. Hello. Can you hear me? Hi, John. Yes. Hi. Uh, so I'm John Harding. I'm actually the project manager with the community builders working on the St. John's project. Uh, I apologize I couldn't be there tonight. I, I only heard about this meeting yesterday and had another public meeting I had to go to before. Um, overall, I think everyone explained our, our situation very clearly. Um, I just wanted to add that, that we have presented to the Conservation Commission. They requested that we present in front of them, um, and we were happy to do it a, a few months ago. Um, my understanding is that they're supportive of the project, but you know, don't need to take it from me. Thank you, John. Can, um, we have a question for you. Mr. Hardy. May sure. May sure. I ask, as part of the presentation to the Conservation Commission, um, were there any specific requests in regards to uh, the effects that this project may have on the What was your basic presentation about for you, let me ask you. So my presentation to the Conservation Commission was just general overview of what the project would be, where it would be located, um, presenting our wetland study of the site. Uh, there was one specific comment that they made. Um, they were requesting that we build additional trails connecting our project to the existing trail network in Delcart. Um, that comment had actually been vetted out earlier in the technical review committee with Jamie and, and the rest of the team. Uh, and we had already committed to doing that prior to the Conservation Commission meeting. So that one was pretty easy. So after the presentation, did they, did they make any comment in regards to any negative feelings towards the project being that close to the No, no uh, they were happy to hear that we weren't on any wetlands. Um, yeah, I think we were able to vet out any concerns that they might have with the technical review committee earlier. Um, Thank you, John. Actually, Rika Lai is on, and she has her hand up, so maybe she's our conservation agent. Um, Rika Lai Goodlander. Hi, thanks everyone. Sorry, I am, um, I'm actually on my couch, so I'm going to say you. What? Yes, the Conservation Commission did request that the applicant come before them as a general business discussion. Actually, the proposal is outside of conservation jurisdiction. Um, that is fine. So no matter what conservation um, 
really has no say in the project. The Conservation Commission chair, um, he did write a letter of support. However, if the project does come within Conservation Commission jurisdiction, that is a separate permit. So that would be for trails within buffer zone, that would be for trails connecting Delcart. And at that time, um, the, the language in that letter is worded as such that this letter of support does not supersede any down the line permit. So I just want to, to clarify that. Thank you, Rita. Okay, Glenn? That, she, she said exactly what I expected there. It is outside the jurisdiction. Right. And because it goes solely through ZBA, correct me if I'm wrong, um, in regards to any 40B that comes across. So, for all intents and purposes, I'm sure they're going to be fair neighbors because they did make at least a good effort to go to Concom. That was very nice of them, but they did. Thank you for doing so. Um, that at least shows that they're making an effort to, to be you know, mindful of the impact that they have on the environment. And hopefully, the neighbors around there <clears throat> will continue to voice their opinions on if anything that they feel may be impactful that might, may or may not be overseen. Thank you, Mr. Mr. Thank you, Councillor Jones. <laughs> um, all right, so I think um, I think we've answered and talked about all the questions we had, and we might actually get to move on to the second item on the agenda. Six items. What do you think? Sounds good. Okay. All right. <coughs> I don't even have my agenda. Here it is. Sorry, everybody. Uh, I've been writing notes on my other. Do you want to plug in? Uh, so we're going to move on to the second, which is a discussion of project presentation of 121 Grove Street, and this is our first friendly, what friendly 40B um, that has gone through the uh, new process. Thank you, Madam Chair. Well, um, well, our customers are getting set up here. Um, I just want for the, for the EDC's purpose, it's a really important point, um, just for everybody at home. Um, I want to make sure everyone understands there's no vote, there's no approval. That's not why we're here tonight. Um, this isn't for a vote. What um, the folks, as you can see by the meeting packet materials, um, have gone through the friendly 40B process uh, already. <coughs> Planning board issued a thorough uh, letter uh, of comments to consider. Um, and then uh, the Conservation Commission has also done the same, but the proponent is working through the Conservation Commission as required to do. The Town Council Planning Board or ZBA, none have any role or nor authority in the delineation of the wetlands and the approval of that. Uh, Madam Chair, why we're here tonight is this uh, project proposal at some point needs to put before the full town council, um, and as we've done uh, many other times, uh, trying to look at projects like this and have an opportunity to kind of talk about them, uh, as mentioned earlier, and just transparently having public discussions about these things. I think, is, I know you agree, we, it's very, positive and good to try to make sure there's tape for people to watch and listen to the issues and listen to the ideas, the concerns, the comments any of you have. Um, and I'll be working with, obviously, the chair of the council in the near future to talk to them about uh, coming into a full council meeting. So tonight's the first uh, opportunity for people to uh, share their thoughts. And um, it looks like the PowerPoint's up. <laughs> Delayed long enough. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, so it's back to you, Madam Chair. If, you, if there's anything else you want to 
Maxell XL2 is black. We'll be burning CDs soon. I also think it's really important. I'm just going to add a little bit on to what Jamie said, on his joke about taping. Because <laughs> then it shows how old you are. Really but I mean, I don't even. Like, 8 track, right? Vinyl. Um, so, You're vinyl. But it's really important, I think, for us to actually be able to talk about the process. Because right. I think a lot of people don't. We, we don't really. There's not, like this, the for, friendly 40B process that you put together um, doesn't exist for other things. Like some of us, like me, like to know every step of the process and like a timeline of projects and things like that. But, um, and maybe um, the person who stand up, stood up and asked the questions, maybe she's a lot like me. And like we like to know what the next steps are gonna be and what's involved. Um, so that's why I'm glad that you guys are here tonight with us. And um, I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to, I don't know who wants to start, but I'll I'm just going to let you guys start. introduce yourselves and, and uh, have fun. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, good. Uh, good evening, uh, uh, Chairman, members of the, the board. Thank you for uh, entertaining us this evening. My name is Richard Cornetta. I'm the attorney uh, working with the applicant Fairfield Residential. And to my right is Janice Hurst. She is... Uh, been responsible for getting us connected, and Rob Hewitt is uh, is the uh, is the lead for Fairfield Residential that will take us through uh, what we believe to be a, a very exciting project that is, uh, you know, on the heels of what we just heard, uh, is a friendly 40B. Uh, administratively, I think uh, Jamie has taken you through. Uh, we've appeared before the technical review committee last year. We've also appeared before. Uh, the uh, planning board, uh, who has uh, issued a, a very uh, informative letter uh, uh, commenting on the project, and we've also appeared before the con uh, the conservation commission, um, and I believe we're still in the process of identifying uh, the wetlands areas. So we're we're still very preliminary, uh, and we felt that it was a good idea, given uh, the 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 interest, the local interest in both uh, inclusionary zoning and the 40B concept, that we would come here and speak to you and get your, and solicit your opinions about what we think, as I say, is a very exciting project. Uh, the location of this project, not to step on Rob's presentation, but uh, it's, in, uh, it's on Grove Street, uh, 121 Grove. Um, it's, it's an interesting site, uh, and I just want to you know, highlight some of the points that I think the presentation will bring out. But, it's an interesting site because it provides us a size and scale that will allow us to make a meaningful contribution to the, the SHI, the, the affordable housing stock. This would propose uh, approximately 85 affordable units, which is a pretty good bang for your buck. And, uh, but I should also mention it is an apartment style proposal, so the total number of units would be counted uh, toward that inventory. Um, and the interesting thing about this site also, because of its location, there are no direct residential abutters. Uh, even though this project is residential in nature, when you introduce a project of, uh, of a size of this, of this proposal, oftentimes in a community like Franklin where it's primarily single family homes, it can be somewhat disruptive to a neighborhood. Uh, but in this particular case, we're fortunate enough that we do not have that. Uh, it is in an industrial zone, but it is neighboring or close to 
residential neighbors. I don't want to offend those that are further down on Grove Street. There are residential uh, parties that, that do exist on Grove Street. But where we are located, it is not. Um, and it's also an area in town where traffic is always a concern, particularly when you're introducing a proposal like this. Everyone's concerned, well, what is this going to, how is this going to impact an already taxed traffic system in the town of Franklin. What we have here is a property that is located naturally in an area where you can use Grove Street as kind of a uh, an ability to get from north to south along in, in Franklin and more importantly access the highway system 495 without really overly taxing the 140 corridor. So I, I mentioned those 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 points because as we go through the presentation, I, I you know I, I think it's important to to understand and see the positives uh, in such a proposal like this. And the other thing I, I before I turn it to Rod that I will mention is all the discussions we've had tonight. And by the way, they were they were very informative from from the uh, from the town uh, parties, and we commend them for doing it. Um, the one thing that, that we notice on the private side when you look at making a proposal for residential development is, is there a demand for it? And I think if we've learned nothing from uh, Franklin for All and inclusionary zoning, we realize that there is a huge demand for housing and more importantly affordable housing. And so whether this is called a 40B, whether it's called a 40R, or whether it's just simply something that is being proposed, I think the underlying objective here is to create desperately needed housing otherwise these guys wouldn't be here and I should mention Fairfield residential their name may seem familiar they're a, a national uh, residential development firm in the last 35 years they are responsible for over a hundred thousand apartment style um, residential developments in about 40 geographical areas uh, in Massachusetts, they have a couple of. Pro they, there's a project up in uh, Chelsea. I believe there is one in Stoneham, and most notably, uh, they are the the, the the party that developed Station 117, which is the project, the 257 unit apartment style project that's located down on Dean Avenue, which, which I think it was was quite a success, and so. That's, I guess that's a good segue to Rob, is that not only do we have a unique piece of property here in town that with a unique opportunity to create affordable housing, but we're also dealing with a proven commodity in Fairfield. They've had a history here in Massachusetts. They've had a history in Franklin, and they are very familiar with working with the town. And I think that if you haven't had the opportunity, take a ride down and take a look at what they've done. I think it is, it is a, it's an impressive development and I think it works very well with that neighborhood. Uh, so with that, I turn uh, our presentation over to Rob. Uh, he can take you through the project. Thank you, Rich. Uh, great points, and uh, I'll emphasize some of those as we go through. Uh, but just off the cuff, uh, this was a very informative uh, presentation by your panel of experts tonight. I wasn't anticipating that, but it was, uh, I really enjoyed it. It reminds me of you know being in a university lecture and then at the end of the lecture, you get a practice problem. <laughs> Take home and work on. Well, I think that's what we're talking this here. Is this fair. is, this is, as Rich said, it's an opportunity just not only for Fairfield to develop another apartment-style development, which is all that we do uh, in Franklin. We had a great experience, uh, both entitlement-wise. That was a special permit in Rezo. Was not a 40B. 
Uh, that was 100% market rate, and that was done, uh, we completed it about a year and a half ago. Uh, so as, as several people have mentioned, these projects take a long time to entitle, design, then construct, lease up, and then operate. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we're really thrilled with how Station 117 at Dean Avenue turned out. Both the residents are very happy. We're happy with the product. We had a lot of collaboration with the town during the entitlements, um, stormwater, architecture, wetlands, planning, sidewalk, <coughs> materials, everything was was debated and I think it was it was a great uh, execution by both the town and by Fairfield. Um, so um, I'm also happy to offer any practical experience that you might have questions of me. I've done a lot of development in Massachusetts, maybe a third of them were 40Bs, probably about a dozen over the years. So I've been through it with a lot of different communities and I know it's always controversial, there's a lot of questions, it's a strange process, but I've been through it from the other side, so happy to answer any questions as candidly as I can. Uh, just a few notes as, as you're going through. Some things that stuck to me was that 40B, like any development process, works better when it's collaborative. So the process I like to do is almost exactly what the town process has been. I like to go and meet the planning board, even though they're not the approval authority for 40B, they're often the expert in planning and those regulations. So I always go and see them. Definitely I always stop and see the conservation early since they are very informative about where you can build and, and whatnot. So we're happy to do this collaborative process. We've been to all the boards. This is sort of our last stop before we come to the town council. Um, we're beyond the 30-day limit because we took the advice um, of the Conservation Commission and we've, go ahead, we've gone ahead and filed for our ANRAD. We've had a number of hearings and we're currently going back and forth on the actual limits of the wetlands. We want to get that established before we have anything final because that has a big impact on our site plan, the overall density, and uh, it's just information we can use. So I'm here tonight provide you with information about what we think we can do here, about the site, about the process, but I also am looking for any feedback that you might have now or might provide later. We've gotten some great responses from the Planning Board and the Conservation Commission. We're in the process of wrapping that into our, our plan, and we will be updating that before we come to the Town Council to incorporate the changes that we can. Um, the other thing I've noticed from my other experience in other towns is that we always have a waiting list for the affordable units. So even though it's difficult to qualify, you can only make some, not enough money, and there's a small window, we always have a waiting list. And there's a very discreet process we go through to award those units. Those units almost always don't turn over as people stay. Uh, because we developed the units, they look exactly like the market rate units. You can't tell they're affordable units. Okay. So it's you, you have an opportunity to be in the middle of a, a great community and, and most people stay uh, for a while. And I was glad that it was pointed out that HUD sets the rents. We don't set the affordable rents. We can't charge a dollar more or less. We have to stick to the guidelines and we do. Um, the other thing, 
not just about affordable housing, it's about housing in general. A rental housing provides another option for people. Uh, mostly it's sort of at the beginning of your career before you can afford a house, or at the end when you're sick of the house, but you want to stay in the community. <laughs> those are kind of our two, and we have everybody in between. We have a lot of people at the other end, too. <laughs> uh, so that's what we see. We provide not only just affordable housing, but housing of all kinds. So we try to do a wide variety of you know, sizes and styles and prices to hit as big a market as we can. And I think all the communities we've developed in, um, it's always controversial at the start because it's changed. <coughs> Once it's built, developed, I think it's uniformly welcomed in the town and provides a lot of options for people. Uh, just last point on the affordable units. In my experience, most of the people who apply are from that local community or the adjacent communities. Uh, I sometimes hear in the hearings that there's a perception that people are traveling to find, you know, move into the communities. It's almost always local, and we provide a local preference. We can provide up to 70% preference for local residents first, so they get to the top of the list on the waiting list, and we always um, accommodate that. Uh, affordability, we always agree to keep the units affordable in perpetuity as part of the entitlement process and so for rental housing it's not as difficult as for the for sale housing with the changing of the mortgages so if we agree to 100 percent in perpetuity it'll stay that way forever on your list and again just pointing out that even though only 25 percent of the units in our development are uh, rented at affordable rates 100 percent of those units every unit gets counted on the shi and kind of goes to your list. So I've worked with a lot of towns who are close or just over or just under the limit. Um, I want to pick a development that meets their criteria in the right location, the right spot, the right design, and we've kind of helped them get to the point where they want to be. So um, we're here to be collaborative and uh, I'll run you quickly through the project. Just know that everything is uh, draft at this point. We're still collecting input. Our final application is, is yet to come. So thank you for that intro. And uh, Janice, uh, next slide, thank you. As I mentioned, we're a national developer, but we are locally based. Janice and I work and live in Massachusetts. I've always developed in Massachusetts, both for Fairfield and for uh, a few other companies before that. Um, the office originally opened in 2001, long before I joined. They've done a lot of projects in and around the areas, mostly uh, in the suburbs, uh, 95 in. Rich mentioned some of our most recent projects and what we're currently working on. You can see the towns. I won't go through the list, but uh, our star, of course, is Dean Avenue. Uh, one of the reasons we wanted to come before you, even though we know it's at your discretion since you're over your 40B limit. We think it's a great opportunity for the town uh, in a good spot. So next slide, Janice, thank you. Uh, this is our team. We have a full team of professionals that will be presenting, uh, preparing those reports uh, that Jamie mentioned that sometimes get wordy. Um, but most of these professionals will be peer reviewed by the planning board uh, or the Conservation Commission. It's a very rigorous process. That's why it typically takes at least six months of hearings to get through the process and 
answer everyone's questions to their satisfaction and get to the decision point. Next slide. Uh, this is just reiterating that we've been through um, all the steps except going to the town council in, in your local process. And then after that, we would, um, if it was supported, we would go to the zoning board with that process. Um, so we're planning around 300 units. That will depend on the final delineation of the wetlands, uh, everyone's comments, thoughts. Um, we feel this is a good scale for this site, which is 32 acres. Uh, so we're at about 10 units per acre, which is less than some of the thresholds. I think the new MBTA Communities Act is at 15. Um, it's a nice suburban uh, scale that we've done in a lot of other uh, towns similar to Franklin. Um, and as Rich mentioned, our Dean Avenue project was 257 units. And I think that's been integrated into the community and, and really has been working well. So of one, two, and three bedroom units, the state does require 10% three bedroom units. So we have to uh, comply with that. And that would be our desire to do 10%. Um, How do you afford? Of, of all the units. Yeah, the, the affordable units, they have to be exactly equal. So it has to be 25% of the three bedrooms, 25% of the two bedrooms. Mm -hmm. One okay. have to be affordable. And, and so that gets uh, approved by the state and monitored annually. So um, we, have, we do a lot of amenities, like you would see at Dean Avenue if you've been, um, not just you know the clubhouse and the fitness and the pool that everyone does, but we're doing more and more work from home space. Every project, it gets larger and larger. And so many more people are working from home, so we're trying to accommodate that. Not only in the clubhouse, where we have a big co-working space, kind of like a WeWork setup, but also a lot more dens, built-in desks, cubbies in the apartment where you can work, um, because that's been really well received by the market. Um, we're doing a lot more outdoor amenities, particularly on sites like this where we have acreage to work with. Uh, pets are huge in apartments as other places, so we have a separate dog park and pet wash and cater to the pets. Sometimes we do community gardens. We've been doing pickleball courts and outdoor active things lately. Um, on this site, we'll have at least three acres, probably more of just undisturbed wetlands that we will keep that way, adjacent to the state forest. Next slide. Uh, so we're planning a combination of four and five story wood frame buildings. Mm -hmm. uh, we have currently shown in the site plan, which you'll see next, five buildings. Mm -hmm. uh, that's our standard product. We've, we're building that in a number of communities right now. Um, we have elevators in all buildings, uh, bike storage, interior, uh, roughly 50-50 ones and twos, not including the 10% free bedrooms, which we're required to do. Uh, the 25% affordable, of course. Um, a lot of our apartments, I would think, count as workforce housing as well, because they, they span the price range and less intensive than buying a house. It's a way to stay in a community, come to a community. Um, 
So we see a lot of that. As I mentioned, 10 units per acre, typically around 1,000 square foot average. Uh, the one bedrooms be a little smaller, the two bedrooms be a little larger. That's our average. Um, we've found that parking between one and a half and 1.8 spaces per unit is what the market currently uses and demands. I do see that going down in the future, but it hasn't happened yet. We're seeing more demand for electric charging, so we're doing more and more of that um, and accommodate everybody's needs. So without further ado, this is the 32 acres. Uh, we'll show some context in a minute, but basically top of the plan, left of the plan is the state forest. Grove Street is along the right side. And then that little square out of the bottom left corner is the substation. So right across from, I think it's New England Appliances. Yeah. yeah, industrial across the street on Grove Street. Uh, next slide. Again, that shows just the context. We do have the power lines kind of transversing the slide there along our uh, left border. Uh, next, please. Uh, typical elevation, we haven't designed anything for this site yet. As I mentioned, we're getting feedback. Uh, most of the site is sloping. So we expect that we would have four stories on one side, five stories on the other in most of the buildings. This is an example from a, another project that shows kind of the, that style of architecture we did in that project. Um, again, it's Grove Street, the green is mostly the state forest. Um, <coughs> Station 117 at Devon Avenue, our, our former project there is shown along the rail lines. That's about two miles from this site. We're about four minutes or 1.8 miles from the commuter rail uh, at Forge Park. And also the retail right at the highway interchange. So from a resident perspective, it's got a lot of the things people are looking for. It's got a lot of open space, greenery. You're not in the middle of a dense urban environment. You've got easy access to the highway without a lot of congestion. You can actually go either way from this site and get on to 495 quickly. Uh, we've got retail, uh, stones throw away, and then the commuter rail, which uh, now that COVID is over is, is rapidly regaining its former glory. As I mentioned, 32 acres. Uh, we did go to the board to make sure that the structures that are there, which are basically old farmhouses, are not historical. We've got that uh, determination already. Uh, other than the wetlands and an intermittent stream, there's no sensitive areas like for endangered species or uh, wildlife. It's not in a floodplain. It's not in a well of protection. As Rich mentioned, uh, we don't have direct uh, residential abutters, and uh, we believe that there's adequate sewer in Grove Street based on our discussions with the town, so we don't have Title five issues. This is just our survey um, that will be presented uh, as part of our application. Um, we don't need to belabor this. We all know there's housing needs in this state and, and probably in Franklin, you would agree. And, uh, our whole business is meeting that need across the country, and my business is meeting that need in Massachusetts. Next. 
Um, I've covered most of this, but you know, what we see not only for the affordable units, but for all the units is empty nesters, singles, young families, they're just getting started before they buy the house, and uh, workers in the area that work along 495 or Franklin or surrounding towns. Next. Um, benefits from our perspective for this site, uh, large site provides a lot of open space, screening, not that sort of dense infill environment. Uh, we have enough room for all the amenities we like to do, both inside and outside for people, for dogs, for bikes. Um, excellent proximity to the highways for commuting, both uh, on the highway and the commuter rail and shopping. So kind of meeting, meeting all the residents' needs. Next. Um, I mentioned under two miles of the train station and the retail. Um, and not, you know, we highlighted in yellow around, you know, main road that we just traveled to get here and all the congestion that we all know. Uh, we won't add to that because we're sort of parallel to town along 495. Uh, another amenity for our residents is the Franklin State Forest, which is a great resource. There's actually a trail that comes through the site and it's marked private property, but still on the site. We would maintain that and uh, you know enhance that go through the site and allow that public access. We know there's plans in town to expand this kind of multi-use path along Grove Street, uh, eventually connecting to the rail trail, Southern, Southern Trunk, I can never say. Um, but that's the acronym, SNAP. Yeah, SNAP, okay. Forget the, so, forget the. <laughs> I was trying to sell. I know, we yeah, the tongue twist. SNAP. Um, so we're very excited about that. Um, We'd be happy to help with that uh, connectivity, and particularly along our site. And as Jamie mentioned, there's always mitigation to mitigate any impacts we have from traffic or residents. Um, so one of the nice things about a larger scale development is we have a little more ability to help for special projects that might benefit the town and particularly would benefit our residents. Um, as I mentioned, you know, this this is a different type of housing than single family houses and provides an option for people, uh, which is in high demand. That's why we're here and why we're developing in many other places. Um, it's not required, but we always hire as outside fiscal consultant to work with the town to determine the actual cost of town services versus the revenue that we would produce from taxes. So our consultant talks to the police and the fire, determines how many calls are expected from the police and the fire, what that costs, uh, what it costs for a school child to be educated in town, and then looks at the uh, fiscal revenue. So just some highlights, we did a preliminary study just for this exercise and we would enhance that if we went to the zoning board. But uh, significant increase in tax revenue. I think the current taxes are low since it's a, a very low density single family, about 13,000, I think. Uh, we're projecting more than 800,000 once fully developed. Um, and we have a lot of experience with that from Dean Avenue, so we, we know what the tax bills are in Franklin. Um, as I've, we've, we've talked 
internally with the technical review committee, I think there's ample infrastructure, water, sewer. Um, sorry, just go back a minute. And, um, and lots of emerging retail and different uses. There's a lot of gyms, the brewery, which John Scheib, who put this presentation together, is very fond of, uh, 67 <laughs> degrees. Um, and so we like the sort of mixed use and what, what's happening on Grove Street. Jobs, schools, shops. Next. Um, obviously, we would contribute towards the state's goals and the town's goals for affordable housing and for housing in general. Um, roadway improvements along Grove Street will be part of our traffic study. Uh, we've already been identified six intersections through our technical review session that one of, that should be studied as part of that traffic report. Um, I mentioned the trail going towards SNAP. Um, our initial estimate was 43 school kids. Most of those uh, kids come from the three bedrooms and from the two bedroom units. A lot of data from the that we use from other multifamily developments in town, looking at how many school kids there per unit, and then estimated for this uh, fees, building permit fees and sewer connection fees, of course, we would be required to and would pay, as well as any mitigation that was required or uh, made sense for both parties. Uh, just next steps after we go to town council, um, we, would, we would go to the zoning board. And as that process has been detailed extensively tonight, so I won't go through it, but there'll be a lot of public hearings. Usually they're, they'll do traffic over one or two hearings, stormwater over one or two hearings, architecture, et cetera, uh, both with the town's peer review consultants that are, that's paid by us through a process with the town and through our consultants. And we come to some collaboration and some consensus on all those points before the hearing gets closed. Uh, next. Again, just pointing out <coughs> most of our traffic will go along Grove Street and out to the highway. Next. Uh, usually we're focused a lot on the visual impacts on neighbors and lights and we always you know, don't let light stray outside of our property or noise, and we're a very good uh, neighbor. But in this case, we have State Forest and then the uh, power station, which we will be screening ourselves from. Next. Uh, again, connectivity of the trails benefits everyone. Next. Um, all this is kind of the end product after all the hearings through the zoning board. So really, we're here just to preliminary present the idea, get any feedback. We're gonna boil that all together uh, after we meet with the full town council and then uh, determine our next steps. Uh, next. Uh, we did talk about waivers. You know, we can ask for waivers. They're not always granted, in my experience. Uh, ones that are reasonable are. Uh, the major waivers we would need for this are for height. Uh, only three stories is allowed in the industrial district. We're asking for four to five. 
there's a few setbacks. There's one building that's close to Grove Street that was uh, something the planning board suggested we look at moving back, not infringe on that setback. So that's one thing we're studying. Um, there's a little more wetlands than we expected. We're currently finalizing that delineation. We might combine a building. We might eliminate a building to accommodate the wetlands. So plans in flux, but we're, we're getting close to a conclusion. Uh, next. Uh, this just was copied from before. And uh, I'll just end on a, one of the Dean Avenue <coughs> pictures at the end. For anybody who hasn't been here, yeah, keep going. Is that Milford project being under, under construction right off of 495? Yeah, we're about a month from final completion. We've started leasing that project. You see it on, if you're going north on 495 uh, before you get to 85 on the right? Exactly, the 85 is the exit. And uh, we called it, the marketing name is the Quill. Yeah, you can see it for 495. So that was uh, that was a 40B project that uh, was started by someone else. We completed, uh, worked with Milford, and um, it's three buildings that are five stories in a clubhouse. So, so thank you very much. I'm happy to answer anything about 40B in general or this project or uh, well, well, thank the you. news. Thank you for that. I was actually going to ask you. I might have missed it, but so. Just the amount of units. So it was like, so you said there were 300 right now in this proposal and this plan that is ever changing, right? Yes. Um, so did you say how many one, two, and three bedrooms you were thinking about having? I probably missed it, right? Yeah, no, it's uh, roughly 45% ones, 45% twos, and 10% threes. Okay. So we, we know that whatever it ends up, I mean, the, the total number, whatever it ends up, that's what you'll, you're going to try to. That's yeah, that, that, that would ratio. be a ratio. <laughs> that's what, that worked very well at Dean Avenue. So we, okay. we know the market pretty well here. So we think that'll hit it. And um, I have one more question. Then I'm going to go to my fellow counselors because I know they want to ask questions. So how many, so have you thought, have, have, do you have any preliminary traffic data about how many cars and trucks, tra extra traffic you will be from, from the project yet? We did a pre preliminary look just to see if we would overburden any of the intersections nearby. Mm -hmm. So that can be a deal stopper. And um, so our traffic doesn't, doesn't significantly downgrade any of those intersections, which is kind of the threshold that the traffic engineers speak to. But do they, do they say like a percentage of extra cars or? Uh, I don't recall, but it wasn't it wasn't a significant number. I'm just going to try to boil it down for the folks at home that uh, don't want to read the study. On the southern half of Grove Street, just to illustrate a contrast, when uh, 210, 160, 164, 158 all got redeveloped, all of them did traffic studies around the same time, mm -hmm. and it showed a lot of red. Okay, like literally spots on the map on you know the traffic study that said you know red. And I think we all know what that means. Mm -hmm. And essentially, with the traffic light and at least the intersection redesign at Grove in Washington, mm -hmm. 
you know, there's at least some, I think, um, I'm sure, acknowledgement that those improvements will help anything that goes, that will go on Grove Street, right? Whether it be housing, but also commercial industrial. Um, I got an update today, by the way, on the traffic light. Uh, it's still gonna be several more months. Just a heads up, Rob. If you order a traffic light, it takes a couple of years now. Uh, I have experience that, yes. <laughs> yeah, surreal. Um, but I can't speak to the northern side. And I think the traffic engineers, both the preliminary as well as the peer review, will help illustrate what that exact impact is. Um, and obviously, you know, the kind of greens and yellows, um, you know, right. kind of result in at least telling people that it's not as extreme as the oranges and reds that came up on the southern half. So with all that being done, I'm obviously probably speaking for many in the community that we're all curious to see how the peer review would come out on the traffic study to see kind of what mitigation, if any, would be required. Um, as folks know, we are repaving this year lower growth from Washington all the way up to Kenwood Circle. Um, as we've talked about at the last council meeting. Yeah, so, that's great. Um, so it's just a couple thoughts. Well, when you think about, like, if there's, if you have one to two spaces per unit, right, so then there's 300 units, 55% of those are your two and three, three bedrooms, so then you could have maybe, let's see, 300, maybe cars. 450 cars, maybe? Would that be? Like, something like that, right? Maybe? Yes, I think basic math tells us that, uh, yeah. Councilman The one caution I would say is that the traffic review in this case is, is probably one of the most critical um, elements of this. Why? When Netta proposed the facility, it was pre-pandemic. They had started going through the process and clearly showed, based on driving patterns and the customer drives that were going to go there, that, that they needed to, part of the mitigation for that project was through the host community agreements to help fund that intersection. Yeah. As they were going through the planning board process, um, it all changed. Um, then they were given the license to do delivery. You know, they were uh, online purchasing. The pandemic changed all that for them, and the traffic counts changed. I see here a unique feature of the work from home element being built into the marketplace. I, I can't. I, I'm way underqualified to like possibly try to understand what that means. Out Beaver Street, north and south on Grove, there's three avenues out, and I think you know any traffic consultant that's hired on behalf of Fairfield, but also the peer review, I imagine would take in this new dynamic of um, the work from home spaces, the cubby holes, all the different features that obviously I think you know they're arguing the market is looking for. Right. So right. I don't know. I mean, I we think, don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, we're almost like in yeah. uncharted territory on how this work from home concept, and not only that, just how new housing being built with the work from home being built into the housing. Yeah. Um, which I haven't really, I mean, I've heard of a little bit, but I hadn't seen it really in Franklin yet. Um, I don't know how that will fare. Um, there yeah, are people that are way more qualified than me. To and I don't, the, the traffic engineers have not caught up to this phenomenon, and I think it'll, it'll lag, so okay. Okay. we'll still be looking at, you know, this is what typically happens in a carpet community. That's the data they'll look at. but. But you're right, we're seeing it in our, all our communities that, you know, people aren't leaving at 8.30 and coming home at 5. They're right. in and out constantly through the day right. with no particular patterns. And we used to visit our clubhouse and our work from home spaces, which used to be like a little business center 
about the size of this table, and there was never anybody there. Now you go and you wonder, do people work outside of the home at all? They're just teeming with people. So I think it's a different dynamic. We don't fully understand it yet, but it's definitely changing a lot. Um, so. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to say before I forget that um, that the, the EV chargers are really mm. super important. And another thing I think about a lot is that um, with the cost of electricity and the cost of like heat and all that, it, like it might be affordable to rent, but they are they going to be affordable to to live. to live in, right? So I'm I'm like really into green things. And so I was thinking, like, well, it would be nice if you had carports that had solar panels. You had solar panels on top of all your buildings, and you know, it gets yeah. kind of I get kind of crazy that way. But like, in, in a green roof, you could have the first green roof in Franklin, um, and maybe the gardens are up there because there's a lot of deer in Franklin, and the deer are going to eat everybody's gardens. So, um, but I want everybody else to have a chance to talk, so I'm going to let um, I'm going to call on Glenn. Uh, I've got three basic questions. First question is actually directed towards Brian Taberner, if, if he has a second. Um, one of their requests, Brian, is a waiver to allow them to build in an industrial zone, which I know as we've, as we've discussed many times over the years, that particular zone has, a, has, a, has an array of economic overlays, everything from marijuana to, to medical to the whole tech and everything else that will be impacted by losing this much acreage of land in that area, how much do you think this is going to impact our future economic development in regards to our industrial properties like that, by, by giving up this much acreage? Well, to be honest with you, this property has uh, it's been for sale for on and off the market a lot of years. Um, they've tried to sell it off multiple times. One time they wanted Six point million, six million or more, or whatever, a long time ago. Um, I had always, I was always hoping that it would be a uh, industrial or a uh, high tech use eventually. Now the the markets, the real estate markets, have changed substantially in the last five years in a big, big way. Um, you know, here. So whether you get a high tech manufacturer or, or uh, some kind of an office headquarters or anything in a location like that. There are, because of all the wetlands in that area, similar, you're gonna end up with a similar situation where you live. You would have access roads and it wouldn't be like, you can't get a two or 300,000 square foot office building, I mean a, a warehouse in there. It's a different type of, I had always hoped that, I mean, uh, be honest with you, the, the property owners, uh, they deserve to sell a property, and the, these individuals deserve to look at uh, developing. Uh, you're right, it is an industrial zone. We don't have a lot of land left, so that is something that uh, you know, the town should well, consider. But Brian, one of my major concerns is, hey, we've had the first 40 feet that went under the radar over in an industrial zone over at the border of Bellingham, and now we're going more yeah. industrial space. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it's as industry maybe wish we could continue to keep using that land towards what could be potential future economic development. I mean, that's kind of my thought. 
when it comes to that particular zone is that's kind of, for the most part, that's really where we have a good portion of our tech and our uh, industrial base right. on Grove Street to have it impacted by additional housing. How much is that going to affect our future economic development in the, in the town? And we will try to actually garner more uh, revenue for the town for economic development. Um, my, just to finish out one question is, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think any uh, friendly 40B is a, uh, it's a little, it's somewhat of a political decision. Do you want it? Do you want more housing? Is this what you want, or do you want to um, to go in another direction? It, it, like I said, I would love to see that property uh, for high tech office, any number of things. It's, it's exactly what we wanted in that region. Um, we created uh, economic opportunity areas. We've done a lot of different things to attract that type of, of development over the years. And on another note, it, it, our tax, uh, the income coming in from our tax revenue is, is increasingly more and more residential over the years, um, as far as percentage of revenue coming in. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, it will get to a point, you know, the, the concept, that it, I hope they don't do it in the near future, but somebody will say, well, let's have a split tax rate again and all the other issues. And, uh, we need a commercial industrial tax base that is that is healthy. And I think that that's, that is the reason we, you know, more than anything else, that is the reason we have an area like that, <coughs> industrial or commercial. But it's really, like I said, it is more political type of uh, it's not a planning. If it was up to the planners, we would be, uh, I'd be ruling the world a different way. But it's, <laughs> right. it's, not the, it's, not, it's not the way it goes. So it's really not my, you know, uh, I gave you an opinion that I would have loved to see that area. <coughs> um, the Westley, I would have loved that to be industrial yeah. or commercial headquarters in that area. Uh, it really is uh, the way things are. We, it's up to you, it's up to the council. Thank you. At the ZBA. Thank you. I appreciate that, Carmen. Um, my second question is in regards to uh, projected revenues. You're on your slide, based on three hundred departments, based on forty-five percent one bedroom, forty-five percent two bedroom, ten percent three bedroom, uh, projected three, forty-three school-age students, which I think is a lot, especially when you start throwing in the three-bedroom uh, units. I, I have I have uh, three bedrooms in my house. I have five kids in a fifteen hundred square foot house. And it doesn't take much. I, you know, I have four kids in one bedroom. And I've said that before many times. You can build a bedroom, you can put kids in. So, but anyways, 43 school age children, based on your estimates, uh, at roughly $15,500 um, per, per pupil expenditure. That's the rough estimate on what the school charges for students. That comes out to $666,500. That's 83% of the projected revenue that's going to be off of this property. Jamie, Just to note, um, Councillor Jones's math is accurate under the scenario he proposed. However, by the time, as Joe had pointed out, Mr. Halligan earlier, I mean, we're at the infancy of the process. I can't speak to the developers. I don't know how long it'll take, but I'm guessing by the time they get a shovel on the ground, build units, lease them, 
you know, that cost per pupil per child is going to be much higher than 15500 More than likely, I'm using a rough estimate. Right. And you're using the accurate current number. But just to the public, you know, four years from now, that's going to be 20000 right? Right. With, with, again, no real solid promise that the projected revenue is actually going to go as up high as quickly as the expense per student would. Through you, Madam Chair, it, it'll never come out. I've read these studies for 25 years in my career, and, and with all due respect to, um, you know, Council for Joel's comments last week about roads, you know, he's accurate in the fact that costs don't really add up for what you bring in revenue. Mm -hmm. It has never been that way. It will not be that way under this project, and will never be that way. I know despite our best efforts, we will try, but it won't. <laughs> because the system that we have set up isn't dollar for dollar perfect like that. Maybe in the future, um, it will work out that way. I don't know if the developers have a different model of calculations, but I just caution against the idea somehow everything just works out perfect. I think, um, you know, uh, there could be far fewer than 43 kids. Um, sociology demographics tell us, like we all know in Franklin, um, there are way fewer kids being born today. Um, in fact, Mass Taxpayers Foundation had a report come out a month ago on demographics in Massachusetts saying that uh, in 2027, I believe, there will be more natural deaths in Massachusetts than natural births. Um, that is unbelievable. <laughs> that is truly uncanny. Um, so I don't know, and I think they're estimating. I agree that number might be low, um, but I, I've read these studies. There's been so many of them done over time about the cost. Really hard, Councilor Jones, to pin it down perfectly. Um, I think what is going to be likely exposed, in addition to the school children, uh, three bedrooms and maybe the two bedrooms, are probably the expense affiliated with transportation infrastructure. It's probably going to be the cost of the settlement. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, I think to my point, Chair, one more question to you. Okay. Is is my overall feeling based on just the questions I've asked is is we're looking at a project that's going into an area that could affect our future economic growth in a positive sense, meaning that we have an industrial zone that for all intents and purposes is developed according to what it's zoned for, as well as overlays could actually benefit us in the long run as far as tax revenue is concerned in, in respect to expense compared to a project that for the most part would add to our expense for, for, for all intents and purposes and take away from future growth, um, which is bothersome for me. And my only other bothersome part of this is the fact that you're looking for a way for five stories for an apartment building. Um, and through you, Madam Chair, to Jamie, how does the fire department feel about that? With, 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 with five, five buildings, five stories tall, kind of tucked in up off of Grove Street. Through you, Madam Chair, the fire chief has written a letter um, uh, acknowledging that the building will meet code. Um, I think the fire chief has also talked to them uh, about the critical nature of the purchase, the authorization the council gave uh, maybe a month ago for obviously replacing the, the full ladder truck, um, which is now on order um, due to your support. Um, 
obviously the ladder truck is needed for a project like this and that story. So I think, you know, looking out, and I think he mentioned it, and I, I don't want to say anything incorrect, but at some point, thank you, Mr. Councilor, at some point he had a slide up, the fire chief mm -hmm. of the buildings in town mm -hmm. um, and the runs they do, and I apologize, I just don't have the number right off the top of my head, but um, this wouldn't be the only building, set of buildings, but um, you know, obviously the quantity of those buildings at that level are, are you know, not the most common height, frankly. But the fire chief did write a letter uh, acknowledging that the project doesn't need uh, the code specifics. Um, and so from that perspective, uh, the fire department, I think, is comfortable um, with what they've, uh, the draft preliminary design that they believe have uh, on the table. Thank you, Madam Thank you, Councilor Jones. <coughs> Councilor Sheridan. Yeah, so the chair from you to uh, town administrator. This is a little different than the discussion last week, but this developed, correct? We will have a homeowners association that handles all the expenses, unlike some of these other developments, correct? I don't actually know. I believe so, but that would be a city's folks. <laughs> I'm sorry. So there would be a homeowners association that pays that handles the road. No, it would no, be it would be privately owned by Fairfield, and we would. Yeah, but so it wouldn't add anything as far as like so. They pay the tenants to cover their rent. Right, because the tenants not cover those. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you you'd handle the. Yeah. So the we would do all the maintenance and management and water too. Or? Okay. Yeah. And uh, I really like the idea of connecting the. And I remember this property since the Liberal Franklin I've been by there. I assume it was a farm. It looked like a farm. It's been for sale since 2008 when I came. It was a big yeah. for sale. So yes. Yeah. It was. It was. Yeah. But since I've always wondered about. I thought maybe they'd try to sell as a farm. So any plans for it? First, I love the idea of connecting the state park to this. That I've hiked the state forest with my kids, and I think I've come across those two land signs. So they'll come down and be access to everybody. <coughs> and he, if there's 43 kids, any plans for a playground or anything? Uh, typically, we don't get a huge demand because the kids are usually Going like somewhere. one or two, and then people yeah. are moving out. But uh, we have done that in the past, yeah. so something we look at. And uh, I think that's it. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Councilor Sheridan. Councilor Frangelo? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so it seems like a, an opportunity just to sort of give some thoughts, so mm -hmm. that's what I'll do. Uh, here's why I like it, um, the increased revenue, which I do think, let, let's be clear, your point's very well taken in terms of let, let's make sure that we're um, maximizing the potential revenue of each parcel. Each student doesn't cost us 15000 more, right? Most of what we spend on is buildings, uh, superintendent, principals, faculty, staff, right? Each additional student, like it takes 500 to get a new building, take, you know, or whatever. Uh, it, it takes 30 just to get that first new teacher, right? Most of it's going toward uh, larger things. It's not like we're spending uh, fifteen dollars to $20,000 on each additional to the sort of triggers. Um, but I do, uh, but your point's very well taken that we should be maximizing the revenue of each parcel. But either way, increased revenue, good good thing. Uh, increased housing options, good thing. 
potential uh, improvements, especially to the multi-use pathway, fantastic. That warms my heart. Is why I don't like it. <laughs> it's really just the location. For, for many of the reasons that have been said in terms of it being an industrial uh, parcel. Um, but in my mind, for uh, you, you called it pedestrian oriented. I, I think that's laughable. Uh, walkability is defined as having routes that are useful, safe, comfortable, and interesting. Uh, it's, there are no routes that are useful. You would never want to walk to any of your basic needs, work, school, uh, shops, uh, you just don't from that parcel. There aren't, it's not interesting, there aren't, aren't good sidewalks, they're long, it's two and a half miles, according to Google, just to walk to the transit uh, <coughs> station. Um, why do we care about that? We care about it for a few reasons. One is that it increases our traffic. Uh, if, if, ever, if you have to take a car to every single place, then that's what's going to increase our traffic. The thing, you know, if you um, see up and down 140, most of these 40 uh, B units are walking to the grocery store. They're walking uh, to school, they're using the, the school buses. They're not adding uh, to our traffic, at least our internal uh, traffic, uh, as much. Every single person living in these places will have to use a car to get to every single place. That, that uh, hurts our, our traffic. It also hurts our affordability. Right? It's really hard to call these affordable if you have to use a car to get everywhere. AAA has now raised its average cost of um, car ownership for a year over $10,000. Right? Those are expenses that we're adding on top of um, you know, these otherwise, otherwise affordable units. And it's what makes it, it's what differentiates it from every other 40B that's come before us is it's at least in some way connected to um, our, you know, basic needs or our previous and likely, again, uh, fixed bus route, which this is, would, would not be. Um, I, I don't have the answers for how we can make this parcel uh, work, um, but I would think that I would start with connectivity to basic needs being transit shops. Um, you know, our, our downtown uh, groceries, uh, things like that. Particularly, if you get us to Fort I think that would be something. But, uh, yeah, it, it's difficult. It's difficult. I really appreciate you coming forward again. Forty B is great. I, I listed all the reasons why it's good. It's going to be a difficult location to uh, to make positive for the town. Thank you. I think, Councilor Frangelo, what I'm hearing you saying is that there needs to be a shuttle. Uh, I'll, yeah. let them, I'll let them present us with, An with electric ideas, shuttle. but if yes, yeah, give it an electric shuttle running with a green to Forge Park. Uh, right. Park to the Forge Park shuttle to shuttle to the. But, but I don't know. I don't know. How I don't know. Do you, would you like to like respond to that? Or? No, that's no. that's certainly something we will take into consideration, and, and it's actually a great idea because you're right. People don't want to get in their car to go everywhere. That's one of the detriments if someone's looking at, say, Dean Avenue versus this property, and yeah. where am I going to live, who am I going to pay rent to? You know, that's a factor, right? A lot of people 
Um, you know, they want to get on the train, be able to walk there, walk to shops and retail. And while this site has a lot of benefits, being great access to the highway and a quick drive to retail and to the train station, it doesn't have pedestrian friendly features except, you know, nature trails and hopefully a connection to the rail trail. So you're right, it's, uh, there's no perfect site, but there's probably a way to address some of those concerns. We'll think about that. Yeah, thank you. I think it's definitely one of those, um, like that we've been, the Franklin for All project, we've been talking about how do we connect community mm -hmm. and how, how do we make it so that people can get to their, um, well, what is it? Not basic needs. Basic needs, yeah. Basic needs without having to take a, a car. And I think that um, Council Frangillo's point is, is very well taken. I think I've been thinking about this for a while. And, and that, like, that, it just, where it is is so far away from downtown that we're trying to revitalize and, and invigorate. Um, and so it's, it's a little different for us to think about something a little bit farther away, right, than, than being downtown like that. And um, in the Station 117, I go by it uh, twice a day. And I see people walking around. Everybody has dogs. People are out. It's really fun to fun to go by, and I see the same people. And there's kids. There's like baby carriages, and um, and it's really it's it's really nice. Yeah. I mean, I do I do enjoy I, I enjoy seeing it, going by it, seeing the people there. Everybody seems happy. Um, <coughs> there's um, there's one side, one area which is really kind of close to the road. And that um, that kind of concerns me about the one of the buildings that's really close to the road there, um, and it's really high, the t I think it's tall and a little too close to the road. But that's one of my concerns. I know that the planning board gave you a couple of like the other buildings were too tall to be next to the forest, maybe. Um, yeah, so have you have you you're addressing what the yeah there's, board is giving there you? is some competing comments about different yeah. buildings, but. I think uh, one theme we've heard is the building that's close to the road is too close. So there's yeah. some options. We can move it back, flip the parking in the building. We can make that. Uh, one of the other, we had a standalone <coughs> clubhouse, you know, the amenity building, mm -hmm. um, which has become mostly a package storage room for all the Amazon deliveries that everybody gets. Um, so we keep building bigger and bigger rooms. but. We might incorporate that amenity building into one of the larger buildings to just have fewer buildings, less impervious area. Um, maybe that goes up front so it's lower density at the, along the road and then it gets steeper as we go back. That's kind of what we're thinking as a way to address not only some of the concerns we've heard from the wetlands and the planning board and, and from yeah. tonight. And there was um, something from the Conservation Commission about maybe um, like if you have to fill in something, then you you have an area. You mentioned something about maybe having an area where you could um, reintroduce wetlands or replicate. Yeah, replicate. replicate. Yeah. yeah. And usually it's a slightly higher, it's like one to, to one, one two to one. Yeah. And so we have enough room to do that on this site. We're just kind of defining where those wetlands are. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting, so it feels like Franklin's a little more forward-thinking than a lot of places because years ago, all the 40Bs 
or on the edge of the town, right on the border with another town. Um, because that's where, you know, that was the desire was let's keep them out of the way. We don't want to see them. We don't want to deal with this. But now I think people are realizing it's good to incorporate it into the fabric of the town. And so you can drive by, like you said, and it's connectivity. So it's interesting, the sort of nature of development has changed. Are you saying we're progressive? <laughs> it's like, wow. No, no, it was a joke. Um, I'm going to go, I'm gonna go uh, up to the audience and have. Hi, it's Joe Halley here. Uh, just a little rebuttal to, to Mr. Jones's comments. Well, I do appreciate uh, the fact of wanting to have more industrial. I've always pushed that we should have more industrial, more commercial, because we're like a 12 or 13% commercial versus It's about an 8 point. It's different. Uh, we all know, we all remember the name, Andrew Passanti, good friend of ours, ex-council. He actually uh, had that as a listing, that property, a few years back. Mm -hmm. And I was very interested in possibly buying that to do something commercial industrial. After reviewing the amount of wetlands on it, which could never hold or withstand anything industrial or commercial, it's very weaved and roundabout. So therefore, someone like Fairfield can work around those edges and kind of make it work. But as far as having a a large medical office building, an Amazon, uh, anything like that with a 100,000 square foot building, 200, the land is not feasible for that. It's almost as if it was designed for residential, so it has that beauty of the turns and going around the weapons, overlooking your windows, looking at the ponds, the streams. I really appreciate it because I'm a commercial industrial guy. So having knowledge of that property, I know that that will never happen and it won't work. I studied it and studied it. They almost wanted to give me the property, uh, the cost of it. The improvements was just out of reach to make anything work commercial industrial. As far as uh, uh, children in the schools, uh, Jamie can correct me if I'm wrong. I think we're losing 100, 150 students a year out of the school system in Franklin. Uh, I don't think that's going to affect the amount of children that are in school. And the last thing I'd like to touch on is 43, 46 new students. Well, we're not saying they're coming from out of town. They may already be in the system and moving out of another location to go into an affordable home. They already may be in the Franklin school system. So we're not necessarily going to attract new students. I would hope that a lot of them are going to be from Franklin, because that's kind of what this project is designed for. But again, the real major issue is the industrial base, and I really appreciate that. If that was all flat, dry land, it wouldn't be there. You would already have something built on it that could be built there. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, Council Jones. Thank you, Madam Chair. Just a quick question in, in regards to one of the waivers you have listed here. Maybe Madam Chair to the town administrator to explain this one. Uh, under the last waiver, it says the waiver to request um, stormwater management. The project will be permitted under the Mass DP stormwater regulations. The stormwater will be designed to comply with local stormwater bylaw to, I'm just confused. How, how does waiving our, our local stormwater management have anything to do with anything? Can you explain here? It's a great question. I think with the rise of the compliance that the town's able to do, I mean, that's something um, I'd have to ask Gus, you know, is that, a, is that a waiver that's asked often? 
it's a typical waiver request, waiver request, because it's Council Jones is I think referring to, you know, the town has it does have a very progressive stormwater bylaw. I'll say it it is very, you know, I mean, it is very progressive and well ahead of its time. It was put in I think 07, 08, uh, 15 years ago now, Mark, Brian, you got here, but I'm not sure if it's a typical waiver that's requested. I can, I could answer okay. that real quick. You got three people, but Mark, mm -hmm. Rob, yeah, Andy, I'm going to refer. We'll go yes. first. Okay. I'm going to refer that to Mark. Ask the applicant to define what he said, what okay. that means, and then yeah. go. Yeah. All right. Thank All right. you, Mark. Yeah. You get to define. What's the waiver mean? Um, it was somewhat of a blanket statement without having studied the site very deeply. We got that uh, sort of a pushback on that waiver request from the planning board in their comments. Yeah. And we've studied it further, and we can fully comply with the towns. Okay, so it's so that's pretty that'll good. be off the table. Yeah, with that waiver. Yeah. Okay. But that answers my question. Yep. <laughs> that's but I did want to hear, if you don't mind, Madam Chair, yeah. take this question to Gus in regards to the common, yes, common waiver. Someone would ask. Which one? The stormwater stormwater waiver that they requested. Is that a common thing that people would request that they waiver our I know. current stormwater management bylaw? It has to be mitigation with stormwater some way, somehow, is my interpretation of it. It's not a common thing that I know of. I don't, I'm going to actually push this question off to Mark Sorrell too. <laughs> um, I think generally in a comprehensive permit situation, and Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, um, it's kind of bundled together. So, Jamie alluded to the fact that we've got a progressive, we also have an expansive stormwater management bylaw, which was required by our, our stormwater discharge permit. So any disturbance of two acres or more, and this, does, this is all uh, the entire site, uh, this is not restricted to wetlands, conservation of jurisdiction, but the rest of the site has to be developed. Uh, there's pre-development requirements, there's development requirements during construction, and there's post-development requirements. So it has to do with the entire site development, which is why I asked to clarify what it was he was concerned about. Because it's a very broad, broadly wooded and broadly covering bylaw. Right, right. Yeah, if I could further expound, so we we didn't have any waivers for Dean Avenue, and that, we did that successfully. That's why I'm comfortable saying that here. In some towns, there's some very specific things in their local stormwater guidance um, that conflict with sometimes with the state guidance. So mm -hmm. that sort of our it's usually a sort of a knee jerk is to just ask for that waiver because sometimes there's conflicts. Uh, you know, open basin versus covered storage and, mm -hmm. and whatnot. But not an issue here. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So it doesn't exist anymore. Thanks. <laughs> Take it off. Does anyone in the audience have any more comments or questions? Anyone on um, Zoom land? See, I'll say Zoom land now. Online? Everybody, second. Councilors, any other questions? No. So with that, 
Um, I want to thank you very much for being here tonight. And everybody, uh, Brian, your uh, 40B discussion, I think, I know it was, a, it was a little bit longer than we thought we were going to go tonight, but I think it's very important information and everyone got to, got to um, <coughs> ask questions. And with that, I will accept the motion to adjourn. Second. All in favor, signify by saying aye. 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 We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. By the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.